Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Panastoria. I'm Jonah. I'm Lindsay. And today's episode, as you noticed, we're kind of somber today because today's episode is concerning a rather tragic moment in our generation's history. Here, anyway. Here, anyway. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> As you guys probably all know, it is the September 11th attacks. This past Saturday, it was the 20th anniversary of the attacks. And in the coming months, it'll be the anniversary of the invasion of Afghanistan. Hence why today we are going to be talking about not just the attacks, but also the events in Afghanistan following. And leading up to. Absolutely, yeah. So... Definitely, I kind of want to get this out of the way. It's definitely the, a watersh- probably the watershed moment of our generation, in, the, in our hemisphere at least. But yeah. it definitely has had an impact globally in terms of foreign policy around the world. Yeah. And uh, how we view and, in, in, in essence, deal with terrorism in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah, I guess that's the best so, way to put that. So yeah. I'm just going to start because I don't really feel like waxing poetic. Although I will say, I'm not particularly upset by this topic. I don't actually feel sadness when talking about it. I'll be honest, maybe that's kind of harsh and weird, but I don't. I don't feel sad or somber even. It's a very big, I think maybe because it's just been going on for so long. I'm like sad because of the results of all of this now, but I'm like probably more sad about that than I am about like, the attack itself and maybe because it wasn't personal no i think that's a fair <laughs> thing to say in my opinion but uh you want to hear my perspective of it mm-hmm. i agree with you about like it like having it talked about talking about the subject was not very sad but definitely looking into the subject and watching a lot of videos yeah and documentaries and reading a lot of th- like i guess honestly i just feel more desensitized to it because i've been really a interested and intrigued by 9-11 for a long time so I've watched a lot of the videos and I've read all of the stuff and like just that kind of thing so I feel almost desensitized to it now where I don't even really like watching the videos is like still pretty like graphic but it doesn't like hit me the same way at all yeah anymore and maybe that's a bad thing but it's also where I'm at so I kind of do I will talk a little bit about my opinions on on that matter when when we get to that moment but yeah we'll talk about that later but yeah it's a weird relationship with this one. As we've talked about privately in our, our little Panastoria chat. But anyway, so where we left off, I guess, in Afghanistan was, uh, well, the last time we talked about Afghanistan, I guess, was... I guess we should say, if you haven't listened to the Soviet-Afghan War, you should probably stop listening to this one and go back and listen to that one. Yeah, it's pretty important. Um, I would check that out for sure. So... We're kind of picking, picking up back there. Um, so after the Soviet Union collapsed in the 1990s, yeah, the communist government in the country led by, in, in Afghanistan, led by Mohammad Najibullah, could no longer sustain itself, essentially. Um, they had relied very heavily on foreign aid from the Soviets. And while the Soviets had been really scaling back the amount of funding they were giving Afghanistan after they left, they were still ultimately supporting them. And there was also still the threat of them being there that helped give Najibullah some, like, power or some leverage, I guess. But when the Soviet Union collapsed, helping Afghanistan remain a communist country or even really thinking about Afghanistan just wasn't a priority for most Russian people. 
<laughs> their lives were sort of crazy and it didn't matter anymore. Um, they even, definitely had more pressing yeah. internal even issues. Even if they cared about keeping it kind of keeping Afghanistan communist, like they weren't thinking about Afghanistan yeah. at all. So uh, as we talked about during that episode, the main forces fighting against the Soviets were essentially a group of warriors that were loose loose they were associated in various ways but just known as the mujahideen and eventually how it was set up was that the mujahideen were largely fighters who were led by military leaders and people like that but then they had a group of political leaders who had left afghanistan who were funded by the saudis and the americans who were anti-communist and they were the ones who were helping push funds and money towards the Mujahideen. So like, it's kind of the most famous story of that war is how the Mujahideen ultimately pushed out this great empire and their, their military. But it's also a well-known story that they got a lot of funding and money from, or funding and weapons from America and other countries. And how that happened was by these Islamist political factions that were based in Pakistan mostly at the time. And they were the ones sending, basically they were channeling the money and the weapons to the Mujahideen themselves. When the Soviet money dried up for the communists, the Mujahideen and the Islamic political factions who were funding them saw an opportunity because all of a sudden, hey, our enemy's a lot weaker now. (laughs) Shit. Let's go. So really the fight of the Mujahideen was against communism in general. It was both against the People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan and also just the Soviets. So it was really like a large-scale war against communism but once the soviet money dried up it really just became a war against the pdpa so the mujahideen headed for kabul ahmed shah Massoud and his mujahideen allied with saeed mansour's ismailis and former communist general abdul rashid dostum other mujahideen factions were starting to advance towards the capital from different directions gulbuddin hekmatyar and his faction from the south abdul rasul sayaf faction from the west and Abdul Ali Mazari, also from the West, and Hezbi Ismaili Khalis from the East. So the political parties that were funding the Mujahideen and the United Nations decided to appoint a legitimate national government to succeed the communist rule. And they decided to do this through an elite settlement among different resistance factions. So they were essentially going to try and unite the Mujahideen uh, and the various resistance factions into like an actual united force. Now that their united enemy was kind of gone. So... (laughs) The Afghan party leaders were based in Peshawar, Pakistan, and while they were meeting there, the military situation around Kabul was getting really tense. Because I can't stress enough how, like, the difference between the these peop- the, the political factions in Peshawar and the Mujahideen fighters themselves, like, they're very loosely aligned. Like, they are aligned in that the Mujahideen needed money and guns, and they ultimately wanted the communists out, but they weren't. They don't, didn't necessarily, like, believe in the same things as the political factions and parties. They weren't, for the most part, like, people like Masood especially weren't really Islamist. Like, that wasn't... No, they were definitely, like, mo- uh, he was yeah. definitely a moderate. I, he wasn't a great... Like, I know he's quite martyrized in yeah. Afghanistan, especially with the minority tribes in the north. Mm-hmm. But uh, I don't know, if have you ever seen the documentary, This Is What Winning Looks Like? Mm-mm. Uh, there's a there's this documentary and it kind of talks about what we're going to talk about a little bit later. But basically, uh, like the the Afghan National Army uh, was basically made up mostly of people from like these tribes in the Northern Alliance, and they have pictures of Masood everywhere, mm-hmm. a, a, even in Kabul. 
there are people that they're like citizens saying like you ride around in your trucks and whatnot with pictures of Masood everywhere. But when he bombarded Kabul, he killed like thousands and thousands of people. So they don't really, there's definitely a lot of people who don't look at him yeah. fondly. I mean, which, I think that's probably fair enough with Afghanistan in general, though. Yeah. There's never exactly been a lot of united, like, there's a lot of division in general, like not all of the part, not all of the other Mujahideen factions like Masood either. So yeah, exactly. <laughs> Afghan party. Yeah. They were based in Peshawar. And so while they were there, the military situation around Kabul was getting very tense. Uh, Masood supported the Peshawar process, but Hekmatyar sought to become the sole ruler of Afghanistan, stating, quote, In our country, coalition government is impossible because this way or another, it is going to be weak and incapable of stabilizing the situation in Afghanistan. Which, like, he t- turned out to not be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Masood pertained that, quote, All parties had participated in the war, in jihad in Afghanistan, so they had to have their share of the government, and in, the forma- and in the formation of the government. Afghanistan is made up of different nationalities in order to give everyone their own rights and also to avoid bloodshed in Kabul. We've left the word to the party so they should decide about the country as a whole. We talked about it for a temporary stage, and then after that, the ground should be prepared for general election. Hekmatyar was dram- diametrically opposed to this, openly arguing with Masood and heightening the tensions. Even his friend Osama bin Laden, who had worked with him extensively, was like, chill, chill out. <laughs> <laughs> go back to your brothers and accept a compromise with the other resistance parties. So when even Osama's like, hey, buddy. Hakmatia <laughs> <laughs> uh, refused, confident he would be able to gain con- sole control of the country. On April 24th, 1992, the leaders in Peshawar agreed upon and signed the Peshawar Accord, establishing the post-communist Islamic State of Afghanistan. The defense ministry was given to Masood, while the prime ministership was given to Hekmatyar, and he refused to sign, so with the exception of his group, all of the other parties were unified under this peace and power-sharing accord in April. Meanwhile, Najibullah was forced to resign and make way for this neutral government. Some remnants of his, of his administration supported the Peshawar Accord, which proclaimed the Islamic State. In the new Islamic State of Afghanistan, Islamic law was introduced, bars were closed, and women were ordered to wear the hijab. In June, Borhanuddin Rabbani, leader of the Tajik-dominated Islamic Association of Action, was made the interim president of the new Islamic State of Afghanistan, and on December 30th, 1992, he was elected head of the seven-member government council for a two-year term. However, Hekmatyar demanded a new share of power, and after clashing with Rabbani's troops, they signed a new agreement in March of 1993. This made Hekmatyar the prime minister in June and shortened Rabbani's presidency from two years to one and a half years. Fighting ultimately continued between the factions, and Kabul was largely destroyed in the process. It wasn't really a very peaceful time at all. In late 1994, a Pashtun-dominated Islamic fundamentalist militia called the Taliban managed to conquer large parts of Afghanistan with the support of Pakistan. I'll talk about their support a little bit more later. The Taliban made steady gains through 1995 and 1996 and were able to seize control of the capital city of Kabul in September 1996, driving the Rabani government and other factions northward. So Hekmatyar wasn't wrong in saying that Yeah, it's weak. (laughs) By the end of the year, the Taliban occupied two-thirds of the country. Najibullah was arrested and executed in public by hanging on September 27, 1996. So there's just definitely no room for communists. The Taliban renamed the country the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan and imposed an even more strict version of Sharia and Purda on the population. So Sharia means law, which is ultimately like when people here call it Sharia law, they're just saying law, law. (laughs) Kind of hilarious, so... Yeah, and also is clearly shows a 
very deep misunderstanding of what Sharia is. Yeah. I mean, that's the usual kind of thing that happens. It's neither here nor there. The Taliban rule had an especially negative impact on women and girls, as, as has been well documented. They were forced into a burqa, stayed, forced to stay indoors, and banned from working outside the house with rare exceptions. Almost all girls lost access to education, increasing illiteracy rates, etc. Um, unfortunately, all of this is happening again. Movie theaters, soccer stadiums, and television stations were all now closed. Communists were systematically executed. Prayer was made compulsory. And those who did not respect the religious obligation after the azan were arrested. Gambling was banned, and thieves were punished by amputating their hands or feet. So, they're a very serious group. Cabinet ministers and deputies were mullahs with uh, madrasa education. So, several of them, such as the Minister of Health and the Governor of of the State Bank, were primarily military commanders who were ready to leave their administrative posts to fight when they were needed. So, they weren't really, they didn't really care about the administration thing. (laughs) Military reverses that trapped them behind lines or led to them dying obviously increased the chaos in the national administration. You know, when your minister of health is out there fighting people, it's, you know, not helpful. (laughs) At the national level, quote, all senior Tajik, Uzbek, and Hazara bureaucrats were replaced with Pashtuns, whether qualified or not. As a result, the ministries basically ground to a halt in terms of their functions. It was definitely frustrating, I guess. So Afghanistan, like we've mentioned before, is an extremely ethnically diverse country. Pashtuns make up the largest portion of people, but kind of barely. Like, it's still, it's not that significant necessarily. A plurality of the people there. exactly. So the Taliban, them being Pashtun, they really, like, leaned into that, and they also refused to basically acknowledge anybody else. So they largely modeled their decision-making process on a combination of the Pashtun Tribal Council and what they believed to be the early Islamic model. So discussions were followed by a building of consensus by the believers. Essentially, people they decided who were real Muslims and, yeah. Before the Taliban captured Kabul, there was even talk of stepping aside once a government of, quote, good Muslims took power and law and order was restored. So in some ways, like, to me, that, like, instantly brought my brain to thinking about the idea of communism and how, like, eventually the idea is there's no government. We all reach this higher level of communism. Yeah, it's weird. It seemed like a similar kind of, it's not the same concept, but similar, I guess. Similar kind of goal, just with different aspects yeah yeah completely different framework and everything but i guess a similar goal however that didn't happen (laughs) um and as the taliban's reach and power grew their decisions were made more and more by uh the mullah omar without consulting the council or any other parts of the country so mullah omar pretty much just took over he's like this is mine now i am the captain now (laughs) um The Taliban were very reluctant to share power, and since their ranks were overwhelmingly Pashtun, they ruled as overlords over 60% of Afghans from other ethnic groups. It didn't go great. In local governments, Taliban loyalists dominated city councils, even when they could not communicate with the roughly half of the population who spoke Dari or other languages. This led to feeling that there was a lack of local representation in urban administration, which made the Taliban appear as an occupying force, more than a government that is local because they are ultimately but they felt like an occupying force the taliban remained in power until the uh, united states came along and changed that but <laughs> they uh never really went away and i mean a lot of people obviously were people enough that the the population of afghanistan wasn't wild about taliban rule and obviously still isn't no they weren't even like they were particularly not necessarily wild about the idea of total islamic yeah the total islamic system because 
what what was interesting is fi- like figuring this out. And Lindsay and I actually talked about this at length. Is that a lot of the issues in terms of unity in the in Afghanistan has nothing to do with the ethnic uh, the ethnic diversity. No, I mean that's part of it. But what is mostly the lack of ability to uh, grant gain unity in the country is because of how the ge- how frankly Afghanistan's geography kind of sucks yeah it's not great it is very mountainous for the most part and most of these peaks are like over 23 like some of these are up to 2300 or 23,000 feet high and so there's a lot of communities that are completely isolated isolated. Kabul is like kind of smack in the middle of a valley in Mm -hmm. the the, surrounded by mountains and because there's not a lot of infrastructure there's not a lot of telecommunications there's no way to like get supplies and like essential services for people to survive out to these like very isolated yeah communities so and also obviously we can't undersell the impacts of colonialism Mm. um (laughs) let's not pretend that that wasn't the thing and didn't have a very lasting impact on afghanistan I mean, yeah, that's a, that's the thing. Is like they basically, it's one of it's again one of those things where they drew these colonials drew the borders, yeah, expecting nothing bad to happen. Well, not really, or just not caring, frankly. What well, true, yeah. But one thing, interesting thing, I I I'll, I'll get into that a little bit later. But yeah, so the the geography, just to understand the geography, is what makes it very difficult for unity in Afghanistan. It makes it difficult for invading forces to properly take over, but it as a result also makes it difficult for even people within the country to like... Communicate. To really communicate. Yeah. And even, like, obviously a lack of national unity is not necessarily good. But I would also say too that like most Afghanistan or most Afghan people, also I learned it's not Afghani people, it's Afghan people. Most Afghans like... So listening to that um that podcast uh npr did npr through line great great podcast recommend it they did a good uh, a great episode on afghanistan and even just the type of islam that really came to afghanistan when it came was very like moderate and very like it seemed like a mix of kind of uh like it was islamic teachings but mixing in I'm probably getting this super wrong and I apologize to anyone, but like Islamic teachings, but mixing in a little bit of like Buddhist thought. Into yeah, it. which I think is true because like they mentioned also before Islam came, Afghanistan was a very like ethnically or a very religiously diverse country. It was mostly Zoroastrianism, Buddhism. And so the idea of like really strict Islamic law, like Islamic law, stuff like that is actually kind of like foreign to Afghanistan. Yeah. Like when people think about Afghanistan, I think especially in the West, we've all been sort of taught that that's like, that's a thing there, but it's, it's been forced on them. It's not like natural. Yeah. To Like it's, it's not, it's not like a place like, um, well, even Saudi Arabia or Pakistan where they are, they've always been more like Islamist and like, that's more like natural to those places. Yeah. Like, and when I just, just going forward, when I, when we say something like tribal, Count like when we mentioned the word tribal, like I know that can be kind of that has been used as an insult and whatnot, and kind of taken as an insult. That's not what we mean. We just no. mean that th- that's their lifestyle. Literally, it yeah. literally. Like we're not saying there are worse words we 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 can say, which I won't. I won't even mm-hmm. mention as examples here. But when we mean tribal, it means that they live within this kind of community, like ethnic community, mm-hmm. and they've lived that way for centuries. So what I one interesting thing I found out is that to a lot of these tribal communities, 
their ethnic cultural identity is more important to them than the religious identity. Like the religion of Islam is important to them. Yeah, but they but, care more about whether or not they're Tajik or whatever. Yeah, they care more. Like they're they're more drawn to their like what cultural yeah. traditions they have. Yeah. Yeah. I hope that makes sense. No, definitely. And so I think we'll definitely admit, and I'm grateful to be learning more. But like Afghanistan, certainly one of the more one of those very misunderstood places that has a very fascinating history and is still interesting. And it's like one of those things where it just kind of breaks their history. So heartbreaking. Like, yeah. Yeah. Like you mentioned, they have a very, very rich culture and identity. Yeah. It's a, it's a really interesting place. That's had a very like heartbreaking history that, yeah, we'll talk about it more, but just part of this episode, I guess for us, a bit of motivation was to also just properly understand the situation in Afghanistan. Like, because at least for me too, it's a lot. It's about a lot more than just the towers themselves, which was in itself a very horrific event. But it's about so much more, and I think that people very much want to compartmentalize nine eleven as a standalone event and something that's like its own thing, but it's not. And all of our lifetime since then has been shaped by it. Yeah. That, so that's why <laughs> I. That's why the name of the episode is in the shadow of tragedy because. We are still living within the shadow of those two. Yeah. Of this tragedy. Yeah. Speaking of which, if you really want a really great graphic novel to read, In the Shadow of No Towers is amazing. It's the same guy who did the, who uh, wrote and uh, I believe he was the artist for it for Mouse. Oh, yeah. It is fantastic. I love Mouse, but I really love In the Shadow of No Towers as well. So I highly recommend that one. So. You're going to get a lot of recommendations for this episode. Just There's a so lot know. of content, ultimately. Yeah. We should probably talk about the actual towers themselves before we move on. So the World Trade Center began construction with Tower 1 on August 6, 1968 with WTC, which is Tower 2, or WTC 2, which is Tower 2, in January 69. The complex had a total of seven structures, but one and two were the largest and the most used. It was located in the financial district of Lower Manhattan, and it was developed and owned by the New York and New Jersey Port Authority until 1998, which is, this is, I just found this out researching it. The towers were constructed primarily with lightweight steel, 200,000 tons worth, along with 425 cubic yards of concrete. The towers had a combined total of 43,600 windows. When Tower 1 topped out in 1971, it became the tallest building in the world, but it was surpassed only two years later in 1973 by the Chicago's Sears Tower, which is now known as Willis Tower, but I don't think anyone calls it that. So I'm sure, sure, I hope I'm not the only one that is like this, but diving into this and I was just like, wait, what were the trade centers used for? And I feel really bad. There's a lot of things that I'm like realizing. They're in definitely hindsight. more famous for what happened to them than anything that happened in them. Yeah, but they're also like before that they were famous just for. I'll, I'll get into that, but yeah. just their iconography. Oh I guess. yeah, yeah. They leased office spaces to mainly financial firms, with some law firms, television stations, publishing companies, airlines, etc. So various airlines and other international or national companies had their either had their regional offices in there. A lot of headquarters were in there, I I believe. 
The New York Trading Board was located here with its own trading floor on the grounds, as seen in the 1983 film Trading Places, which is a great film. You guys should go watch it. Yeah. In total, 500 businesses operated in the complex, employing around 50,000 people. In 1974, French performing artist Philippe Petit stunned onlookers when he walked the 400 meters between the two towers on a tightrope. He walked back and forth between them a total of eight times in a performance that lasted 45 minutes before he came down and was arrested. His story is in the subject of the film Man on Wire, which is another fantastic film. I actually never saw it. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Like, very much so. The Twin Towers were a major symbol of New York, possibly the most famous, more famous than the Empire State Building at one point. It was also the site of the climax of the 1976 King Kong remake. There's your monkey fact for today. (laughs) (laughs) So this is just my personal opinion. The way I kind of view the World Trade Centers after this is that the Statue of Liberty is the ultimate symbol of not just New York State as a whole but the united states as a whole it was one of the first things people would see when they emigrated to and ended up on ellis island and then to me the empire state building is a symbol of the new york's 30s era era Mm. uh kind of like i know the 30s was kind of in the economic depression but there was also kind of this economic boom during the war yeah and so you got the empire state building symbolizing that and the chrysler building i won't leave that out and then the World Trade Centers, specifically the, the towers, were a symbol of the New York 70s era and the financial importance of that era where they had that financial boom kind of in the late 70s or like through the 80s. Yeah. To me, that that's what those towers represent is the progress, the financial progress during the, I mean, quote unquote progress yeah. <laughs> during the 70s. I mean, it, it's definitely the way, it's definitely depending on who you ask and why you look at it. So an average of 200,000 people would visit the towers every day, and that's just the number of tourists who are visiting. So it doesn't take into account how many people are working there, how many people are going there for meetings. 200,000 tourists a day. Yeah. Damn. Because, I mean, at one point it was the tallest, they were the tallest buildings in New York. So going to the observation deck was the best way to see the New York skyline. Yeah. Controversy surrounding American foreign policy, particularly its foreign policy in the Middle East, were beginning to take shape by this time. So this is around the 90s. Mm-hmm. Ramzi Youssef, a Pakistani national man of disputed origin, he's either was born in Q- Iraq, Kuwait, or the UAE, it doesn't really matter became radicalized prior to studying electrical engineering in Wales and traveled to Afghanistan to learn bomb-making at an Al-Qaeda training camp. He entered the United States in 1992, along with others he had met in Afghanistan. It was while training these men he plotted to attack American soil. In New York, the man constructed a 15,000-pound bomb. On February 26, 1993, Yusuf and fellow conspirator Aid Ismoli rented and drove a yellow van to a public parking beneath the North Tower. After igniting the fuse, the men fled the scene. At 12.17 p.m., the bomb exploded, killing six and injuring thousands of people. The explosion also caused a fire in the garage. 2,500 pounds of debris collapsed into the lower parking levels. The smoke was so intense, it managed to make its way up to the 93rd floor of the building. 
Minutes following the blast and first responders' arrival, the New York Joint Terrorism Task Force arrived at the scene and began their investigation alongside the FBI, NYPD, JTTF, and FBI already suspected Islamic fundamentalists were behind the attacks, as they had been tracking several individuals and groups in the months prior that were located in New York. The day after the bombing, investigators found the van in the rubble with signs it had blown up from the inside out. By tracing the VIN number, they were able to trace it to, rep to a reported stolen van they made the day before. FBI stalked out the rental place when Mohammed Salmeh entered, attempting to retrieve his $400 deposit back on the van. He was promptly arrested by agents on the scene. When searching Salome's apartment, agents arrested a further three suspects at the location. So yeah, just because this guy went back to try and get this deposit back, it's always something weird like that, isn't it? It's always it? something really stupid. Like uh, the, what, uh, the Son of Sam killer was caught because of a parking ticket. Yep. So this guy was caught because he's like, I kind of want my 400 bucks back. A search warrant at a storage unit linked to the suspects uncovered bomb-making material and chemicals matched at the scene. Yusuf had by this time already escaped to Pakistan. And, but here's the amazing thing. World Trade Center reopened for business by March of the same year. Salome and the other suspects arrested were tried and convicted in March 1991 and all were sentenced to life. Yusuf remained on the run, even taking part in, another in other terrorist plots. This included the planting of a bomb on a Philippines flight meant to test for future bomb plots. He was eventually captured in 1995 during a raid by the Pakistani ISI agents and was extradited to, to the United States. ISI is the intelligence services in Pakistan, by the way. Yeah. He they come up a few times. Yeah, they do. He claimed his motives behind the attacks related to American support of Israel, as well as American interference in the Middle in Middle Eastern affairs. He never admitted to religious motives and always avoided such questions when asked. He was found guilty of murder and conspiracy, sentenced to life with possible parole in 240 years. He remains incarcerated at the Supermax prison in ADX Florence in Colorado. So when you... Correct me if I'm wrong, but if it's just, if it's life, uh, but parole in 240 years, why even bother putting that yeah. down? You know what I mean? Uh, formality. <laughs> yeah, I suppose. So following six years of civil war, Colonel Omar al-Bashir led a bloodless coup against the Sudanese government of Ahmed al-Migrani and Sadiq al-Mahdi. The coup took place on June 3rd, 1989. Bashir's reasoning for the coup was to rid the country of corrupt parties and politicians, which I don't know how wrong he was. I didn't, I'm sorry I didn't dig too deep into this, but anyway. The newly formed Revolutionary Command Council for National Salvation, or the RCC, suspended all democratic activities, plunging Sabdan into a 30 year long period of totalitarian rule. He was all, and Al Bashir was only deposed two and a half months shy of the 30th anniversary on April 11th, 2019. Bashir's government was Arab nationalist, but also Sunni Islamist. He implemented Sharia at a national level in civil, criminal, and personal legal code. It also adopted hudud punishments, which separated crimes as against man or against God. The legal code further implemented punishments such as flogging for consuming alcohol, amputation of the hand for theft, and death by stoning for adultery. It should be noted that women who have been raped 
have been charged with adultery in certain cases, although there is no record of stoning or amputation ever occurring in Sudan. Upon returning to Saudi Arabia, bin Laden continuously insisted on using Al-Qaeda to overthrow the socialist government in South Yemen, as well as attempts to sabotage the Yemeni unification talks. When Iraq evaded Kuwait, bin Laden pleaded with the Saudi royal family not to depend on, uni on the United States for support. His pleas were promptly ignored, and the American forces were welcomed on Saudi soil. This angered him, as he argued, argued only Muslims were allowed on the Arabian Peninsula, and only Muslims should defend the holy cities of Mecca and Medina. He even attempted to have Saudi clerics declare a fatwa against American forces, but they refused out of fear of consequences by the royal family. Bin Laden's criticism of the royal family put him in danger and, as, and they did as much as they could to try and silence him. He was eventually expelled from the country due to his continued criticism of the Saudi-American alliance. At first, he returned to Afghanistan, but was then invited to Sudan in 1992 by Bashir. Bin Laden settled nicely in Sudan, taking his four wives and number of children with him in a large home in the capital of Khartoum. They lived under assumed aliases. I honestly could not figure out, like, find a credible source for how many children he had. So every source I looked at said something different, so I don't know. In Sudan, bin Laden ran a construction company called Al-Hijra, which specialized in constructing roads and bridges. He also operated a tanning business on the side, exporting tanned leathers as far as Italy. So no, not like tanning beds and stuff like that. Like I, I, I at first thought while reading this but leather tanning furthermore he managed several farms millions of acres in total employing thousands and producing sugar bananas peanuts sesame seed oil and corn he also owned a trucking company and a shipping company while certainly seeming as a means of starting a new life these businesses were also used to conceal the expansion of al-qaeda these businesses were used as means to recruit new members, obtain equipment and financial support for the business, as well as transport such equipment without raising suspicion. His companies also had bank accounts around the world, including in Europe and the United States. Bin Laden established three new Al-Qaeda bases in Sudan as training camps, the first of such Al-Qaeda camps. Members trained here were sent to Afghanistan, Chechnya, Tajikistan, and Bosnia during those respective conflicts. Bin Laden also started attempts to produce chemical weaponry to use in assassinations. It is not known if any of these were successful, but still scary to think about. Bin Laden began developing ties with e Egyptian Islamic Jihad during this time, and, they organ and the organization acted as sort of a mentor to Al-Qaeda. It is believed much of Al-Qaeda's methods and beliefs were inspired by Islamic Jihad, which is one of the oldest jihadist organizations operating at the time. Al-Qaeda also took inspiration from Hezbollah. It was the latter's attack on the U.S. Marine base Bin Laden found particularly admirable. In June 1995, Pres Egyptian president and strong American ally Hanzi Mubarak was in Ethiopia during a joint summit of the Organization of African Unity. Islamic Jihad, with Al-Qaeda assistance, attempted to fire a rocket launcher at Mubarak's limo, but the rocket launcher malfunctioned. This, coupled with the attacks in Saudi Arabia, increased international pressure for Sudan to either arrest or expel bin Laden. Bashir allowed bin Laden to leave to the country of his choice, which was Afghanistan, in 1996. In June 2001, Islamic Jihad would merge into Al-Qaeda. 
On August 23, 1996, from his cave hideout in Afghanistan, bin Laden declared jihad against the Americans. He also denounced Saudi Arabia for its continued cooperation with the United States. He called for open attacks on American troops and American soil and denounced the Hassas al-Saud for corruption and as betrayers of Islam. By this point, bin Laden had gained his strongest ally in the Taliban, who were on the brink of controlling Afghanistan during this time. On August 7, 1998, at half past 10 in the morning, two bombs exploded outside the American embassies in Nairobi, Kenya, and Dar es Salaam, Tanzania. Even though they were conducted in separate countries, the bombings occurred only a minute apart from one another. In Nairobi, 201 Kenyans and 12 Americans were killed, with a further 4,000 injured. In Dar es Salaam, 11 Tanzanians were killed. While both bombers were meant to die in the explosion, one lost his nerve and fled from his truck moments before the explosion. He was later captured by Kenyan authorities attempting to flee. Furthermore, one of the planners was captured after he attempted to flee to Pakistan. In their testimony, both men admitted their membership to Al-Qaeda, how they received training from the camps, were supplied weapons and materials for the attack, and he was ordered by bin Laden himself. Bin Laden did praise the bombings, but he denied any involvement, but it is pretty well established that he was the one who ordered it. Angered by the attacks, the Americans launched cruise missiles at known training camps in Afghanistan on August 20th, as well as one, of, one at an alleged chemical weapons plant in Sudan. Six camps in total and the factory were destroyed. Tragically, it turns out the factory was not producing chemical weapons, but was actually manufacturing ibuprofen, specifically aspirin. President Clinton defended the decision to attack the targets, as particularly the factory stating intelligence had received evidence it was producing nerve gas based on finding EMTA acid in the surrounding soil. However, the CIA later admitted the evidence they presented wasn't concrete and further revealed they had no evidence the chemicals had actually come from the factory. It should be noted the attacks occurred only a week after the Clinton scandal broke, and it, was, it has been since been charged the attacks were used as a public distraction from the scandal. Doesn't, wouldn't surprise me. No. By 2000, Al-Qaeda had managed to gain a foothold in Yemen, a result of instability brought about following unification. Yemen had become a major player in the black market trade since the central government had difficulty dis establishing control over the country. The United States Navy used Yemeni ports during the Persian Gulf War as a refueling bay and continued to do so afterwards. Bin Laden seized the opportunity to take advantage of the situation, since he knew Al-Qaeda could operate without interference from the Yemeni government. Here, Al-Qaeda was also able to obtain weapons, explosives, and recruit fighters off the black market. On October 12th, the USS Cole was docked in Aden, refueling when a small boat rode next to it its operators smiling and waving at American naval personnel. As the sailors waved back, the small boat exploded, resulting in a massive hole in the ship's side. 17 American servicemen were killed, with a further 39 injured. Despite the damages, the coal remained afloat and returned to stateside for repairs. An FBI investigation was launched and was quickly established Al-Qaeda was behind the attack. Bin Laden again denied involvement, instead blaming it on American foreign policy and interference, which, I mean, that's not what, that's not an answer necessarily. Like, you're giving us motives, but not who to blame. <laughs> so, yeah. And we 
No, we return stateside. All right. And now back to the nightmare of presidential elections. This one in particular. Oh, how the world could be different if it had gone differently. <laughs> it's actually one of the biggest what ifs for me in lots of cases in just like my if, lifetime. If Gore had gone If Gore elected? had won, like yeah. what would have happened? Because like, I believe that 9-11 still would have happened. That the, I don't think 9-11 had anything to do with Bush necessarily <laughs> oh, no. at all. But <laughs> his dad, sure. But <laughs> um, I'm just always like fascinated by what would have happened. But anywho's, uh, the 2000 United States presidential election was held on November 7th, 2000, with Republican George W. Bush, W as I'll refer to him, winning over Democrat Al Gore in one of the most controversial elections in U.S. history. Remains that still. <laughs> Does it? Yeah. I mean, the the Supreme Court rulings and stuff that came from it. Okay, like, yeah, that's fair. Dramatically fair. changed how elections were. Like it, yeah, it actually had like really serious implications. Okay, yeah, you, okay, you get you get you got me. <laughs> Al Gore, uh, vice president to the incumbent Bill Clinton, or Bubba Jay, as I like to refer to him, um, <laughs> had secured the Democratic nomination with relative ease, while Bush had a much tougher go in the primaries. Even though he was seen as an early favorite for the nomination, in large part because of his last name and the fact that he was wildly popular in the South, he faced stiff competition from the likes of people like Senator John McCain, who you might remember also ran for president again in 2008 with our old friend Sarah Palin. But yeah, he he was running for president in 2000 as well. And actually, this election caused a really large rift between McCain and Bush because... McCain largely tried to stay above a lot of, like, really slanderous kind of politics, and uh, Bush absolutely did not. So it caused a pretty big rift between the two of them. They did not like each other at all after this. But in the end, W ended up winning the nomination to become the Republican candidate for president, and uh, he chose his father's old Secretary of Defense, Dick Cheney, as his vice presidential nominee, while Al Gore chose Senator Senator Joe Lieberman. The general election campaign focused primarily on domestic issues, uh, as they tend to, such as the projected budget surplus, proposed reforms of Social Security and Medicare, health care, and competing plans for tax relief, because he's Republican, so obviously. Foreign policy did not come into play, however, as Bush was critical of the Clinton administration's policies in the Balkans, where Americans served as peacekeepers, and Somalia in particular. 18 Americans died in 1993 while also acting as peacekeepers. Bush said that in... said in the second presidential debate that he didn't feel that U.S. troops should be used for, quote, what's called nation building, end quote, which is pretty ironic considering what would happen later in his presidency. But anywho, Bush also pledged to bridge bipartisan gaps, claiming that the atmosphere in Washington stood in the way of progress on necessary reforms. Yeah. And Gore, meanwhile, attacked Bush's qualifications for the job, often pointing to the gaps made in public speeches and interviews which made Bush notorious. See also... There's no word in French for entrepreneur. Yeah. <laughs> there's um, a whole list. Of there's them. a book. Someone wrote a book. Oh dear. Um, with all the bush, what's it's bushisms. bushisms. Oh boy. And to give Bush credit, during one of the one of of the um, what are they called the correspondence dinners? Yeah. He read from it. So. All right. Props. Credit. Where's credits due? I'll give Debbie some credit in the sense that he. Uh, has he has a pretty good sense of humor. Mm-hmm. He certainly doesn't. He's. I will say this. He's never taken himself too seriously, which I kind of respect. <laughs> but anyways. kind of. Um, one thing I I just really want to quickly say my the fa- my favorite thing I've ever heard, like of a description of him, 
it was by someone who knew him like before he was president and governor and stuff like that. And yeah. he said he's the kind of guy you want at your barbecue. Yeah. But not the kind of guy you want running your country. Literally, though. <laughs> yeah. Like, legit. Everyone I know who's met W said he's a wonderful person. Mm-hmm. Like, it sounds like he's a really friendly dude. <laughs> I mean, like, Hillary Clinton talked about how, like, George Bush was the first person, like, W was the first person to call her after she conceded to Trump. Yeah. Yeah. He was the first person to be like, hey, you ran a great campaign. Like, yeah. I was the first person and like, just, he's generally, and the fact that, like, him and the Clintons are, like, best pals now. Or, well, not best pals, but they're friends. Um, he got on really well with Obama as well. Yeah, like I, there is something about him where he seems like a decent, affable human. But I, obviously, that doesn't excuse a lot of his actions. It doesn't make him we'll a good about, president yeah. at all. No, or person or necessarily. Person necessarily. Yeah. I don't. Yeah, I don't want to claim that he's a good person, but he doesn't seem like a stick in the mud or anything. Like he seems like if of any of all the presidents, you could easily like just have a beer and talk about whatever with him. <laughs> you know, like yeah. he seems like you could just. He's got a. Like he's he's got that populist quality, I guess. Oh yeah, he's got a certain charisma. I mean, it's like the type of charisma where you know that he went to Yale, and the only reason he got in is because Daddy paid for it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to say that he's stupid, but like, I just don't feel like he's Yale material. <laughs> but anyway, back to the campaign. Obviously, and essentially, or an especially important issue during this campaign was Bubba Jay's sex scandal. This is plural, most famously with Monica Lewinsky, who is a great Twitter follow. Highly recommend. The scandal it the scandal cast an especially long shadow. It still does, actually. Republicans obviously clutch their pearls and denounce Clinton as this and the scandal. And I don't want to sound like I'm defending what Clinton did either, because it's gross. But obviously, there was a lot of pearl clutching after this and uh they denounced clinton and the scandal and uh bush promised to restore honor and dignity to the white house because the republicans love a good moral issue yeah it's definitely not fair <laughs> to really paint gore with that with that either because like no what, but, what did he have to do with well that? exactly but that's just how politics work yeah. so gore for his part avoided the scandals as did lieberman um even though lieberman actually was the first democrat to denounce clinton during the scandal in fact, some observers theorize that Gore chose Lieberman in an attempt to separate himself from Clinton's past misdeeds and blunt the GOP attempt to link him to his boss. Others pointed to some more subtle signals that Gore put out about proving himself to be, like, not Bill Clinton. Um, Gore went as far as avoiding campaigning with Clinton, who shunned Clinton. He sh- Clinton was shunned to the low visibility appearances where he was popular, so that was... To be fair, I guess, to Cl- like. Clinton was, like, wildly popular still when he was going out of office, mm-hmm. which is kind of crazy, considering everything that happened. Um, well, look, I mean, look at look at Angel, Angel Orange, how much his sycophants are still following behind him, despite yeah. everything. Like, Oh, yeah. It's not hard to... I guess it's not that surprising, but yeah. it's just kind of funny. But he was, like, really popular, and so the fact that he didn't actually really campaign for Gore... Probably did cost Gorg votes. Like, I understand why Gore did it, but I, I actually wouldn't be shocked if it did cost him some votes. Okay. Maybe not a significant number. No. But I mean, but there, it's not like this vote came down to a significant number. It came down to a very small number of votes, so those could have mattered. Yeah. Especially considering the fact that Gore didn't do very well <laughs> in, like, some of the states he should have, so... The vice presidential cam- candidates campaigned aggressively, and both both campaigns zigzagged across the country, often missing each other, like literally by hours in the same stops, <laughs> or like days. 
Um, with the exceptions of Florida and Gore's home state of Tennessee, Bush ultimately carried the southern states by pretty comfortable margins, including Bubba Jay's home state of Arkansas. Or Arkansas, if you really want to piss them off. <laughs> anyways bush also won ohio indiana and most of the rural midwestern farming states and most of the rocky mountain states and alaska gore balanced bush out by sweeping the northwestern united states except for new hampshire which is notoriously pretty republican (laughs) it's like there it's a weird state but anyway the pacific coast states hawaii new mexico and most of the upper midwest so like minnesota and yeah Minnesota. Um, (laughs) I actually didn't really look at the electoral map, but it was pretty dead even. Um, As election night wore on, the results in a handful of small and medium-sized states like Wisconsin, Iowa, Oregon, and New Mexico were very close. But in the end, the election ultimately famously came down to everyone's favorite state in the Union, Florida. As it always does. Every single election. Florida and Ohio. Yeah. And West Virginia sometimes. Sometimes. But Florida. Hmm. Real Florida man energy. Um, <laughs> every election, <laughs> Florida's around the corner. <laughs> How can we fuck this up? We got we got to get our jokes out right now, people, because yeah. it's, it's not going to get better. Really dark. Yeah. Oh man! By the evening of November seventh, just before the polls closed in the largely red state of Florida, all major TV networks were declaring Gore as the winner, basing their predictions substantially on exit polls. And this turned out to be a terrible mistake. However, during the vote tally itself, Bush began to take a significant lead early on in Florida, and by 10 p.m. Eastern Time, the networks had retracted their original predictions and placed Florida back in a still undecided section. By 2 a.m. the next morning, with 85% of Florida Florida having been counted and Bush leading Gore by 100,000 votes, the networks declared Florida for Bush and therefore declared him president-elect. Most of the remaining ballots left to count, however, were in the heavily Democratic counties of Miami-Dade, Broward, and Palm Beach. As their votes were reported, Gore began to close this gap pretty quickly. So, by 4.30 in the morning, after all the votes were counted, and Gore had narrowed Bush's margin to under 2,000 votes, the networks once again retracted their declaration and threw up their hands and gave up. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) There was no predicting this shit. (laughs) Gore, who privately had conceded to Bush, took that back real fast because he realized the final result in Florida was slim enough to require a mandatory recount by Florida by machine under state law. Bush's lead had dwindled to just over 300 votes when it was completed the day after the ele- yeah, the day after the election. So, in Florida, if the vote it's under a certain margin, it's a mandatory recount of the votes, and that's what happened. So, Gore quickly took back his conciliation. He was like, "Oof, my bad. Here's his concession." He's like, "Oh shit, my bad." No. So on November 8th, uh, Florida Division of Election staff prepared a press release for Florida Secretary of State Catherine Harris that said overseas ballots must be, quote, postmarked or signed and dated, end quote, by Election Day. It was never released, and a count of the overseas ballots later boosted Bush's margin to 930 votes. The subject of overseas ballots became a very hot topic during this recount, which was an extremely political event. I'm not really going to talk about a lot of it because honestly, like, it's a lot. Like, the, I, lis- I, I literally just listened to an entire podcast season on the Florida recount. Not even the election, <laughs> just the recount. It's called Fiasco. Really good. But anyway, there's a lot of stuff here. And ultimately, there was a lot of, like, the camp- both campaigns seized the recount as an opportunity to continue fighting their political battle in the press and just trying to win over people because ultimately <laughs> the winner of this battle would be the president. So it kind of mattered. So there was a lot of, like, protesting and a lot of just, like, back and forth jawing and just general, like, angst and 
It was extremely political. So the Gore campaign had fought back against... The Gore campaign essentially supported the idea that all of these ballots should be postmarked and dated or whatever. And so the Bush campaign tried to paint, paint Gore as being unpatriotic for contesting ballots that were, unpost, that were not postmarked. But then Gore's campaign fought back against the agreed-upon rules for what counted as a vote, because, of course, this was not straightforward. They used various systems of chads, which are like a, a ballot where you have to punch through the ballot to select your, make your selection. And essentially the debate over counting was whether or not undervotes, which are like indentations in the, in the, um, in the chad, but not a full puncture. And so an undervote is like, basically they're trying to decide how to count those. Do they count those as not valid because technically they aren't, or do they count them as an intention to vote for that candidate? And then there was a whole other thing with the chads in Palm Beach County being really weird and dumb, like the way so a bunch of people accidentally voted for Bush instead of Gore or vice versa. Like, a lot of really weird shit was happening. So it was a really big mess. And it also really highlighted how decentralized elections are in the United States and how fucking weird and bad that kind of is. (laughs) But anywho, I digress. (laughs) Um, So yeah, Bush and Gore basically fought over what counted as a vote. And whose votes got to count. And it was a really political, messy thing. Um, But one of the bigger controversies ultimately came when Gore requested hand recounts of four counties as provided under Florida law. Harris, who also co-chaired Bush's Florida campaign, she's a Republican, her role in this whole thing is kind of interesting because she obviously follows the law, but then there's also a lot of, like, contention about how much influence she had as a Republican and how much she was, like, willing to you know, help the Democrats as a result of her being a Republican. And so she was really, like, upset at the Gore campaign for wanting hand counts of only four counties because essentially these are four Democratic counties or largely Democratic counties. And so she's like, well, why not recount everything? Because you're clearly just choosing, picking and choosing. It's a whole, again, political, messy thing. But anyways, the major controversy happened when Harris said she would not accept any revised totals from recounted county, recounted ballots in those four counties, if they were not turned in by 5 p.m. on November 14th. The Florida Supreme Court then decided to extend the deadline to November 26th, which was a decision that was later vacated by the United States Supreme Court. So Miami-Dade, and this led to like a whole lot of confusion and just like a lot of counties realizing like we're not going to be able to count everything in time. Just a lot of it was really messy and complicated and confusing. And like I said, there's a lot that I'm not really going to talk about. I'm not going to go into detail here because just trust me when I say it was nuts. Like, there were actual protests outside of the counting facility in Miami-Dade. Like, <laughs> legit protests. This kind of sound familiar. Yeah. Anyway, Miami-Dade County eventually rehalted their recount and resubmitted its original total to the state canvassing board, while Palm Beach County failed to meet the extended deadline, turning in its completed recount totals at 7 p.m., which Harris rejected. So on November 26th, the state canvassing board certified... W as the winner of Florida's electors by 537 votes. Gore formally contested the certified results, and a state court decision overruling Gore was reversed by the Florida Supreme Court, which ordered a recount of over 70,000 ballots previously rejected as undervotes by machine counters. And this, again, led to a whole other, like, thing. I'm really only summing it up in, like, a handful of sentences here, but this went on for a long time, and it was very, like, complicated, and it also like became a really important like legal question about what counts in certain ways like there's a certain precedent they talked about and yeah whole thing 
The United States Supreme Court, however, halted that order the next day with Justice Antonin Scalia issuing a concurring opinion that, quote, the counting of votes that are of questionable legality does not, in my view, threaten irreparable harm to, to the petitioner, who is Florida. Doesn't cause harm to the petitioner. So on December 12th, the Supreme Court ruled in a, in a decision, 7-2, to two, that the Florida Supreme Court's ruling requiring a statewide recount of ballots was unconstitutional on equal protections grounds, and in a 5-4 vote, reversed and remanded the case to the Florida Supreme Court for modification before the optional, quote, safe harbor deadline, which the Supreme Court argued that the Florida court had said the, de said the state intended to meet. With only two hours remaining until the December 12th deadline, the Supreme Court's order effectively ended the recount and previously certified vote totals held. So, really confusing, but essentially the Supreme Court was like, okay, um, you set December 12th as this deadline for these 70,000 votes to be counted. You don't get to count them because, <laughs> like, or like they basically, yeah, they essentially made it impossible for the Florida Supreme Court to actually meet, meet that deadline, so there was never any real chance of the recount happening. So even if the Supreme Court had ruled differently, Florida legislature had been meeting in special session since December 8th with the purpose of selecting a state of electors on December 12th. Uh, a slate of electors, sorry, not state, <laughs> of uh, electors who make up the Electoral College. So for any of our listeners who don't understand the stupid United States elect electoral system, what happens is that when you vote in a state, your state has, or what, the president is elected by the Electoral College, and there are 538 Electoral College votes. Each state is given a number of votes based on, like, population, etc., mostly. It's really heavily skewed in a weird way, but anyway, there's a lot of problems with the college. Florida is important because it also holds one of, it's like one of the largest electoral voting states, so that's why it's so important. Same with Ohio. That's why they always become these battleground states, is because their votes matter a lot. And so they basically, like, since December 8th, the Florida legislature was essentially choosing... All right, so then when they actually confirm the president they literally have people that they choose as their electors to go to congress and cast these ballots or whatever it's a weird thing <laughs> some weird pageantry so the florida legislature had been meeting to basically pick those people since december 8th so they were pretty sure that december 12th was not they were pretty sure this wasn't going to happen anyway had the recount gone forward it still would have awarded those electors to bush based on the state certified vote and gore's likely last recourse would have been to contest the electors in the U.S. Congress, and the electors would only have been able would only have been rejected if both houses agreed to do so. So, like the Senate and the Cong and the House of Representatives would have had to reject, would have had to accept Gore's challenge, and it was never going to happen. And there's also a lot of question about how much, like, if some of the recounts had happened, how much it actually would have swung for Gore. A lot of people believe that Bush probably was still going to win, and I think I generally fall in that category. I do think that like. Counties like Palm Beach County definitely probably went more for Gore, and the fact that they got so fucked up, like, did not help anything. But I'm quite sure that Florida probably did go for Bush because Florida. Yeah. So ultimately, Gore lost the electoral vote, but he beat Bush by 500,000 plus in the popular vote, making him the first president, or for the first, first person, I guess, not president, first person since Grover Cleveland to win the popular vote but lose the electoral college. He even failed to win the popular vote in his home state of Tennessee, making him the first major party presidential candidate to have lost his home state since George McGovern lost South Dakota in 1972. Furthermore, he lost West Virginia, a state which had only voted Republican once in the previous six presidential elections, and Arkansas, the home state of Old Baba Jay. A victory in any one of those states would have given Gore enough electoral votes to win the presidency. Yeah. 
damn it, Arkansas. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Arkansas. We just lost the whole state of Arkansas. Did we even have the whole state of Arkansas? Well, we'll we'll find out. (laughs) I guess we'll know now. In a joint session of Congress on January 7th, 2001, my mom's birthday, the electoral votes from all 50 states and the District of Columbia were certified and Bush took the oath of office on January 20th and served for eight of the more tumultuous years, tumultuous and complex years in American history. Um, Bush was the first Republican president to enjoy a majority in both the House of Representatives and the Senate since Dwight Eisenhower in the 50s. And he sure took advantage of that um, and proposed a $1.6 trillion tax cut bill in February of 2001, and a compromise measure worth $1.35 billion was passed by Congress in June, despite Democratic objections that it was only beneficial to the wealthy as tax cuts often or almost always are. Bush, however, did lose House control when Republican Senator James Jeffords left to become an independent and therefore control of the Senate was passed to the Democrats. And at that point, Bush's life got significantly more difficult in terms of trying to actually do anything on domestic policy or anything. Another policy initiative that really highlighted his early presidency was in relation to the nation's energy production. In May of 2001, a task force headed by Dick Cheney called for increasing the production of fossil fuels and nuclear power in the country by opening more federal lands to mining and oil and gas exploration, extending tax credits to oil and gas companies, and easing environmental regulations. In July, they were sued by a coalition of nonprofits who wanted to make the secret discussions public, um, because of course none of this was public, (laughs) wanted to make the secret discussions public and the identities of the groups it met with. So the case was ultimately decided in in the administration's favor by the Supreme Court in 2004. But related to this was Bush announcing that the United States would not abide by the Kyoto Protocol on reducing greenhouse gas emissions responsible for global warming, which the United States had literally just signed in the last days of Bill Clinton. Because it, to Bush, uh, the agreement did not impose emissions limits on developing countries and it, couldn't, it would harm the U.S. economy was essentially why they backed out. And I remember that being a thing. Like, I, don't, I was too young to like, really understand what the Kyoto Protocol was, but I was like, I remember it being a big deal. I was at Cirque at the time. I remember talking about it. Mm. Yeah. yeah. I just remember talking about it. But that's it. because Alberta didn't sign. Yeah. And I remember just talking about it like with my parents at the dinner table kind of thing. Because I had dinner with my parents at the dinner table every night. We watched the news. Mm. So, yeah. Yeah. I remember talking about it with my uh, teacher, Paul Champagne. Shout out, Paul Champagne. Best name ever. Bush's administration also withdrew from the 1972 Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty and attempted to secure commitments from various governments to not extradite U.S. citizens to the new International Criminal Court, whose jurisdiction they also did not recognize. His popularity in the lead-up to the attacks was at its lowest, but the course of his entire presidency would soon change. So jumping back over to Afghanistan, because I'm just running, I'm just jumping around the world here. The United Islamic National Front for the Salvation of Afghanistan, a.k.a. the Northern Alliance, is a military alliance of groups, or was a military alliance of groups, operating between 1996 and 2001 after the Taliban took over Kabul. So, like we mentioned, there were a lot of people who didn't love the fact that the Taliban had taken over. In fact, actively hated it. And so they decided to, basically all of the Mujahideen who had been part of the original the Peshawar Accord, etc. So, yeah, anyways, the this group of people joined together and created the Northern Alliance, as it's called, because the United Islamic National Front for the Salvation of Afghanistan is a really long name. The United Front, or Northern Alliance, depending on... I'm probably going to refer to it both ways, because I just... I'm bad at that. I'm bad at consistency. Uh, 
Uh, they were originally formed, assembled by the key leaders of the Islamic State, like I mentioned, particularly President Burhanuddin Rabbani and former Defense Minister Ahmad Shah Massoud. Um, initially, it included mostly just Tajiks, but by 2000, leaders of other ethnic groups had joined the Northern Alliance. The Northern Alliance fought a defensive war against the Taliban regime, ultimately. That was their whole purpose. Uh, they received support from India, Iran, Russia, Tajikistan, Israel, Turkmenistan, the United States, and Uzbekistan. Oh, Turkmenistan, what a place. Anyway. While the Taliban were extensively backed by the Pakistan Army and Pakistan's Inter-Services Intelligence, or the ISI, like Jonah had mentioned. Former enemies, Massoud and Abdul Rashid Dostum, created the Northern Alliance against the Taliban that were preparing offensives against the remaining areas under control of Massoud and under those and those under control of Dostum. So basically they were like, well, fuck you, fuck you, let's be friends and fight these guys. <laughs> <laughs> you know, alliances are an interesting time. But I guess, if, honestly, every, I feel like every alliance in war is kind of like that, where it's like, I don't really like you, but it's easier to be with you than against you right now. <laughs> We have a larger enemy. So the alliance was made up of the Tajik forces of Massoud, the Uzbek forces of Dostum, along with Hazara troops led by Haji Muhammad Hakik, and Pashtun forces under the leadership of commanders such as Abdul Haq and Haji Abdul Qadir. From the Taliban conquest of Kabul in September 1996 until November 2001, the United Front controlled roughly 30% of Afghanistan's population in provinces such as Badakhshan, Kapisa, Takhar, and parts of Panwar, Kunar, Nuristan, Lug- Lagman, Samangan, Kunduz, Gore, and Bamyan. I'm really sorry that I fucked all that up, because I definitely probably did. We mentioned the Pakistani government supporting Taliban. On the other side, the Northern Alliance was extensively supported by India, like we mentioned above. So as a result of the Indian Intelligence Agency helping the Northern Alliance, the Pakistani government looked to neutralize that, and the ISI began to support the Taliban. A Human Rights Report, Human Rights Watch report, in 2000 stated, quote, of all the foreign powers involved in efforts to sustain and manipulate the ongoing fighting in Afghanistan, Pakistan is distinguished both by the sweep of its objectives and the scale of its efforts, which include soliciting funding for the Taliban, bankrolling their operations, providing diplomatic support as the Taliban's virtual emissaries, emissaries abroad, arranging for Taliban fighters, recruiting skilled and unskilled manpower to serve in Taliban armies, planning and directing offensives, providing and facilitating shipments of ammunition and fuel, and directly providing combat support. Pakistani commandos took part in Taliban attacks, and British intelligence reported that the Pakistani security forces were actively taking a role in al-Qaeda training camps and helped with the construction of training camps for the Taliban and al-Qaeda. The Pakistani government role was described by Massoud and international observers, quote, as a creeping invasion. This creeping invasion, however, proved unable to defeat the severely outnumbered anti-Taliban forces. According to a report by the United Nations, the Taliban, while trying to consult, and so there was a good reason, I'm just going to stop myself for a sec, there's a good reason the Northern Alliance, Northern Alliance existed. Um, the Taliban sucks for so many reasons, like we talked about, obviously, like just restrictions and rules and things like that, you're not allowed to have a life. Uh, unless your, your whole life is basically just praying and fighting. The um, band of music for fuck's yeah, sake. Like, praying and fighting, that is all you're allowed. Yeah. <laughs> if you're a man. If you're a woman, praying. And uh, the Taliban, like, as they were trying to seize a lot of land, because the thing is, is, like, once the Taliban was in power, they still didn't actually control all of Afghanistan yet. And so there was a lot of fighting, and it just continued. I don't think anyone in Afghanistan's ever really stopped fighting, in fairness. And... They, like any invading army, committed a lot of atrocities. 
So, yeah, according to this United Nations report, report the Taliban, while they were trying to cons- consolidate their control over northern and western Afghanistan, committed systemic massacres against civilians. Uh, UN officials stated that there had been around 15 massacres between 1996 and 2001. They also said that these have been highly highly systematic and they all lead back to the Taliban Ministry of Defense or to Mullah Omar himself. Al-Qaeda's so-called O55 Brigade was also responsible for mass killings of Afghan civilians. The report by the United Nations quotes eyewitnesses in many villages describing Al-Qaeda fighters carrying long knives used for slitting throats and skinning people. Basically, the only thing that stood in the way of future Taliban massacres were people like Ahmad Shah Massoud. After long-standing battles, especially for the northern city of Mazar-i-Sharif, Abdul Rashid Dostum and his forces alongside with the Hebji Wadat forces were defeated by the Taliban and their allies in 1998. So Dostum subsequently went into exile, and Massoud remained the only major anti-Taliban leader inside the country who was able to defend vast parts of his territory against the Pakistani army, the Taliban, and al-Qaeda, not once leaving Afghanistan except for diplomatic purposes. The Taliban repeatedly offered Massoud money and a position of power to make him stop his resistance, but Massoud declined. And he explained in one interview, quote, The Taliban say, come and accept the post of prime minister and be with us, and they would keep the highest office in the country, the presidentship. But for what price? The difference between us concerns mainly our way of thinking about the very principles of the society and the state. We cannot accept their conditions of compromise or else we would have to give up the principles of modern democracy. We are fundament- fundamentally against the system called the Emirate of Afghanistan. There should be an Afghanistan where every Afghan finds himself, him or herself happy, and I think that that can only be assured by a democracy based on consensus. Massoud wanted to convince the Taliban to join a political process leading towards democratic elections in the, f- in the foreseeable future. He had also stated that the Taliban are not a force to be considered invincible. They are distanced from the people now. They are weaker than in the past. There is only the assistance given by Pakistan, Osama bin Laden, and other extremist groups that keep the Taliban on their feet. With a halt to that assistance, it is extremely difficult to survive. As he would know, because (laughs) they were (laughs) supported. In early 2001, the United Front employed a new strategy of local military pressure and global political appeals. Everybody in Afghanistan really fucking hated the Taliban, and it was just becoming, like, more and the resistance and, like, the... um, Resentment was just becoming louder, especially even from the bottom of Afghan society, so your average people, and especially even in Pashtun areas, which were a little more Taliban-friendly because they were Pashtuns. But even by this point, everyone's like, fuck these guys. (laughs) We're done. So, in total, estimates that up to one million people were fleeing the Taliban. Many civilians fled to areas protected by Masood. National Geographic actually did a documentary on on the Taliban called Inside the Taliban, they essentially concluded that the only thing standing in the way of the future Taliban massacres is Massoud. In the areas under his control, Massoud set up democratic institutions and signed the Women's Rights Declaration. At the same time, he was very wary not to revive the failed Kabul government of the early 1990s. Already in 1999, the United Front leadership ordered the training of police forces specifically to keep order and protect civilian population in case the United Front would be successful. In early 2001, Ahmad Shah Massoud addressed the European Parliament in Brussels, asking for the international community to provide humanitarian help to the people of Afghanistan. He stated that the Taliban and al-Qaeda had introduced a very wrong perception of of Islam, and that without the support of Pakistan and bin Laden, the Taliban would not be able to sustain their military campaign for up to a year. On his visit to Europe, he also warned that his intelligence had gathered information about a large-scale attack on U.S. soil being imminent. Yep. We've come to this this point in the story. 
Several sources, including the 9-11 Commission report, name one Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, or as people have called him, KSM, but I'm not going to fucking call him that. <laughs> That's so stupid. Uh, as the architect behind the attacks. Mohammed is a Pakistani national involved in terrorism activities allegedly as far back as 1994, when he was involved in the aforementioned Bojinka plot. He's also the uncle of Yusuf, the mastermind behind the Trade Center bombing and the Bojinka plot. Mohammed studied in North Carolina, achieving his Bachelor of Science specializing in mechanical engineering. His earliest association with extremism was when he, jo- when he joined his brother in Peshawar around 1987. He was introduced to Abdul Razul Saif, leader of Itihad al-Islami. Saif apparently acted as a mentor to Muhammad, and it was through this connection he was placed in charge of several NGOs in Peshawar and Jalalabad. Muhammad also fought with Mujahideen during the Bosnian War, as well as obtaining financial aid for the fighters there. He first gained the attention of U.S. law enforcement due to his association with the Trade Center bombing. Mohammed would later testify his hostility towards the United States was not a result of experiences while living there as a student, but instead his aggressive stance towards its foreign policy and support of Israel. Throughout the 90s, Mohammed would continue to travel worldwide, establishing connections with the jihadist community from Sudan to Malaysia and even Brazil. He spent several years attempting to connect with bin Laden, and he was foiled at every turn due to his wanted status forcing him to flee. The two eventually met in Afghanistan in 1996. 1996 is a very pivotal year in this episode, isn't it? Really? Bin Laden took a liking to Muhammad, making several attempts to recruit him to Al-Qaeda. Muhammad would would decline several times due to his desire to remain independent and work with multiple groups at, at once. It was only after the 1998 embassy bombings, Mohammed finally accepted bin Laden's offer, now convinced bin Laden was committed and capable of attacking the United States directly. Mohammed seemed to have a keen interest in using planes as weapons in terrorist attacks, not just planting a bomb on them and having and that as, as has been done before, but actually using the planes themselves <laughs> to inflict massive damage and casualties. Mohammed pitched several plots to bin Laden concerning the use of hijacked planes as weapons as far back as late 1998 or early 1999. These plans involved hijacking 10 flights to attack targets on both the east and west coast United States. One known suggested target was the U.S. bank tower in Los Angeles. Bin Laden rejected such ideas due to the scale making it impractical. In March to April 1999, while Muhammad was scouting around Southeast Asia, he was summoned to Kandahar to meet with bin Laden directly. It was at this meeting bin Laden agreed to to the plane hijacking proposal, albeit significantly scaled down. From here, the two men, along with Muhammad Atif, began considering potential targets for the attack. Among them were the White House, Capitol Building, Pentagon, and the World Trade Center. According to Muhammad's testimony, bin Laden wanted to strike the White House, Muhammad wanted to strike the, the World Trade Center, and all agreed on an attack on the Capitol building. Bin Laden at the time handpicked the four men who were, who were to lead the operations. By the end of 1999, most had obtained U.S. visas except for one who was rejected. Training for the attack began in autumn 1999 at a camp in Afghanistan. The first of the hijackers would arrive in Los Angeles on January 15, 2000, and the rest would periodically enter throughout the year. 
Juan was even found to have had season passes to SeaWorld and the San Diego Zoo, and they're also known to make frequent trips to Las Vegas. By the end of July, all 19 of the hijackers were on American soil, mostly settling in Florida, attempting to blend in with society. FBI Director Robert Robert Mueller later tes- would later testify the discipline amongst the hijackers was high, saying, quote, There was no slip-ups. Discipline never broke down. They came lawfully. They lived lawfully. They trained lawfully. They simply relied upon everything from the vastness of the internet to the openness of our society to do what they wanted to do without detection, end quote. These guys were not amateurs. While part of an evil terrorist organization, they were highly trained in more than just their quote-unquote mission, but to keep a low profile, maintain self-control, not to draw attention to themselves or the plan. Lindsay, it reminds me of that that part in the first episode of The Wire, Don't Talk in the Car. Yeah. Like, it really does. Like, I honestly see the kind of mentality behind secrecy and whatnot with, like, criminal organizations that we see in The Wire to very similar to how, like, Al-Qaeda or the Taliban or I mean, I feel like all criminal criminal organizations ultimately follow the same kinds of principles because that's how they're successful. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) But it really reminded me of Don't Talk in the Car. Yeah. (laughs) Throughout the summer, the hijackers would spend many hours flying business class across the country, getting familiar with the layout of the airplane models. Preparations were finalized in late July, and final steps began in August. The hijackers purchased tickets for cross-country flights headed east to west. This was done to ensure the planes would be carrying large fueled loads. The date was set for September the 11th. Months earlier, filmmakers James Hanlon, along with brothers Jules and Gideon Nadeau, began production for a documentary regarding the New York Fire Department. The subject of the film was Antonio Spenedettos, a recent graduate from the Academy and assigned to Engine 7, Ladder 1, Battalion 1 Firehouse on Duane Street, Lower Manhattan. The purpose of the film was to document the life of a probational firefighter, commonly referred to as a probie, from the first day to the next few months. On September 9th, tragedy struck the Northern Alliance when... Masood was effectively assassinated by the Taliban. Some believe that th- this assassination was actually what prompted bin Laden to give the final order to go ahead with the attacks. Because two days later, five terrorists boarded the United Amer- the American Airlines Flight 11, a Boeing 767 bound from Boston to Los Angeles. The flight took off at 7.59 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. As per the plan, the hijackers kept quiet for the first 15 minutes of flight time. They were told to wait until the plane had reached 29,000 feet. At 8.14 a.m., air traffic control lost contact with Flight 11 after they failed to respond to new instructions. ATC further noticed Flight 11 was beginning to veer off course back due east. All attempts at communication were met with no response. At the same time, United Airlines Flight 175 lifted off from Boston, also bound for Los Angeles. At 8.19 a.m., American Airlines Reservation Control Center were contacted by flight attendant Betty Ong via an airplane phone. She confirmed five men had stormed the cockpit and had, entered, and had taken control of the plane. She also relayed the hijackers had stabbed two flight attendants and cut the throat of another passenger. Then she gave the seat number of the hijackers. During the call, the plane's transponder stopped working, making it impossible to determine the flight's altitude. At 8.24 a.m., one of the hijackers made communication with ATC, stating, quote, 
We have some planes. Just stay quiet and you'll be okay. We are returning to the airport. Nobody move. Everything will be okay. If you try to make any moves, you'll endanger yourself and the airplane. Just stay quiet. End quote. ATC believes the message was meant to be relayed over the speakers on the aircraft rather than to ATC. ATC can do nothing except watch Flight 11 approach, approach New York City. At 8.44 a.m., officials locked contact with Ong but maintained contact with another attendant named Amy Sweeney. She remained on the line and, and starting to panic, she said, quote, Something is wrong. We are in a rapid descent. We are all over the place. She then looked out the window and continued, We are flying low. We are flying very, very low. We are flying way too low. After a pause, she exclaimed, Oh my God, we are way too low. Some minutes later, Battalion 1 received a call regarding a potential gas leak. They geared up and proceeded to the location of Church and Lispinard Street. It was rather a routine call and Jules Nadeau was on with the battalion chief in order to film parts for the documentary. He was getting practice using the camera as, as the main operations were mostly done by his brother Gideon. While checking the spot of the potential leak, the crew heard a plane fly close overhead. Seconds later, Jules turned the camera to the, his left and captured what is the only known footage of Flight 11 hitting the North Tower. The plane sliced through the northwest corner of the tower between the 93rd and 99th floor. The plane immediately broke apart, sending shards of aluminum fuselage into the steel columns with enough force to rip right through them. The main support beams on that corner were heavily damaged in the impact. Furthermore, the plane's fuel ignited a fireball, engulfing the several floors in flame and smoke. All the floors above 99 became trapped. Elevator cables were severed, halting all elevators in the building. Air pressure and jet fuel shot down the elevator shafts and burst out several floors, acting as air pockets down as far as the lobby. Battalion 1 immediately mounted up and made their way to the North Tower. Jules remained with them, filming. Upon arrival, they found chaos. One firefighter even quoted as saying, it looked like the plane had hit the lobby. Jules entered with Chief, Chief, Battalion Chief Pfeiffer. First responders quickly descended on the scene from all branches, including New York Fire Department, NYPD, the Port Authority, and even the FBI. Battalion chiefs worked to coordinate rescue operations and set up a command post in the building. A major is issue was difficulty getting radios working as the signals had difficulty getting through the building's walls. All of the elevators were confirmed out, so firefighters grabbed whatever gear they could and began ascending the stairs. On average, a firefighter wears around 60 pounds of gear and equipment and takes one minute to climb one flight of stairs. They had to climb 80 before starting to work. Among those who went up was Chief Pfeiffer's brother, Kevin, of Engine 33. At this time, all available units are being recalled to their firehouses. It didn't matter if they were on vacation or mandatory leave. They had to be back. Much of New York gazed at the towers, uh, gazed at the tower in stunned silence, unable to comprehend what they had just witnessed. The fact the plane was hijacked was not made public knowledge at this point, and the news stations were theorizing it was an accident. Bush, meanwhile, was in Florida and was informed of the attack as he arrived at a scheduled appearance at Emma E. Booker Elementary School in Saratoga. He decided to continue with the appearance and sat in the classroom as they read the book, The Pet Goat. 
Just after the first plane hit, Flight 175 radio ATC stating that they had heard suspicious transmissions over the airwaves. This was the last communication that, that would come from the flight. Right after, the terrorists aboard brushed the cockpit with knives and mace and took control of the plane. Panic calls from passengers and crew came in com to confirm the hijacking. Passenger Brian Sweeney, no relation to Amy, texted his wife letting her know what had happened, hoping to see her again and wishing her a happy life if the worst happened. He then called his parents and said he and the other passengers were debating whether or not to rush the cockpit and take control. By now, Flight 175 had entered New York airspace and was heading towards the South Tower. At 9.03 a.m., stunned witnesses watched as Flight 175 struck the South Tower between the 78th and 84th floor. Part of the fuselage burst, burst out the other side and crashed into World Trade Center 5. I, at this point, was glued to my TV along with the rest of my family and actually watched this happen in, in live. So. Yeah. Yeah, I watched. I was sitting eating breakfast when the second tower was struck. I like remember, but I remember like I didn't I didn't obviously see the first tower because no one did really. Um <laughs> Well, there's only one yeah, piece of one, footage. One piece of footage, but um I remember the, like I was watching My mom always had the news on in the morning when we were watching when we, I was getting when she was getting ready for work and I was getting ready for school. And I think the news like cut to it like immediately after, obviously, because it's a big deal. <laughs> and then, yeah, I watched the second attack or the second plane hit. Like, the live. Yeah, they. I don't remember what we were watching, but it was live. They were getting live feed from another station and it was showing the other side of the tower. So we didn't see the actual plane, but we saw the explosion. Mm. So, yeah, and that's just something I'll never, ever, ever forget where I was when it happened yeah. and then of course I, right afterwards i like not long afterwards i went to school and nobody knows what the fuck is going on pretty much and everyone's yeah. kind of freaked out and everyone's just i just remember that day of school being a lot of it was really chaotic did you see what happened and everyone's like yeah like well it was really weird. chaotic and i just like remember having this distinct feeling of like why are we here yeah like, I'm sure a lot of people felt that way. Yeah, like, oh, yeah, I'm sure everyone felt that way doing everything that day. I'm sure our parents felt that way going to work. And I'm sure, you know, like, our teachers probably felt that way about teaching us that day. But it just, yeah, had a very distinct vibe of, like, why are we here? Yeah, my dad was in the high, in his high-rise office building at the time. So it's it's that moment. It's, it's again, that our generation's moments of where were you? When yeah. this happens. Oh, yeah. You know Definitely. what I mean? Definitely. It's like people remember where they were when Kennedy was shot. Mm -hmm. People remember where they were when they saw, when they learned about the trade centers. So, firefighters in the South Tower hear the sudden roar and see debris falling from the South Tower. They knew immediately something bad had happened and now had to set up operations in the next tower. By now, panic swept across the world as it was now clear these were deliberate attacks. When the second hijacking was confirmed, United and American Airlines ordered all flights that had not left yet to remain grounded and any other flights in the air to reroute for landing. One of the firefighters in the North Tower was Father Michael Judge, the fire chaplain. He paced around quietly muttering to himself, praying. Those below watch helplessly as people either deliberately jump from the building or fall as they, attempt to, as they attempted to scale down to a safer floor. These people crashed into the lobby and surrounding area, causing a deafening noise. This is the; these are the 
images that I still get choked up about. Yeah. So. If you, there's a there's that documentary fall the, uh, the man that is it the falling man yeah like yeah that, that one that is one. very difficult to watch but it's worth it in my opinion bush is still in the classroom with, with the children reading at this point white house chief of staff andrew card walks over and whispers in his ear a second plane hit the second tower america is under attack bush nodded and his demeanor visibly changed Bush would later recall he was trying his best to keep cool despite feeling horrified and shocked. He remained in the class, deciding not to rush out in order to prevent a panic. Meanwhile, Vice President Dick Cheney and other members of cabinet are rushed to a secure location. We did talk about this in our other nonsense. Uh, was it last year? Last year, yeah. Uh, that we know, like, there's a lot of criticism of Bush for this moment, but we feel that that's very dumb because <laughs> like i i agree with like what he did he didn't want to be like i'm sorry i have to rush out and go because that would have like kids would have been like what like something's well, going on the reporters that were in the room would have panicked like, how do you well how and i guess the thing is like how how do you and and that and, but like and i guess the other thing too is like what the hell else do you do yeah because like i mean he immediately left like when he when that appearance was done he left and yeah. immediately went on air force one and went to the secure location yeah yeah yeah. but it's like even if and i guess that's the thing is like there's not a lot he could actually do in that moment yeah. anyway you know like i obviously as the president there's a lot of things he needs to be doing and should do but like in that exact moment it's like yeah eh. <laughs> if all the criticisms to levy against w that's definitely a pretty yeah fucking i totally agree with the, i would have done the same thing honestly because like what do you do yeah so American Airlines Flight 77, en route from Washington, D.C., suddenly diverts its path back to the Capitol. At 9.37 a.m., Flight 11 crashed into the south side of the Pentagon. I remember this being quite the... Well, because... Okay, so at this time, I'm at school. I have no idea what's happening at this point. It wasn't until I got home that I found out that there were the other two planes. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, but so they did make an announcement saying that the trade centers had collapsed in class. I don't know what they, I don't know if they did that for you, but I do remember someone, I don't think it was a whole announcement, but someone came in and told my teacher and I don't we overheard. remember. I don't, I remember my teacher being, someone coming in and telling my teacher and then she's like, I don't remember a lot after I got to school. Oh yeah? Yeah. Like I don't remember a lot about being at school that day. Hmm. I remember watching the attack happened on, like happened on TV and then having to go to school. But I don't really remember a lot else. Yeah. About the day. It's I, it's weird how vivid my memory of that day is. And I was like, we were far enough removed. Like, we were we were far enough away from it to not be directly witnessing it. But still, it's, that's, it had such an impact on me. Meanwhile, the fourth pl- a fourth plane, United Airlines Flight 93, has been hijacked and is bound for an unknown target. It is believed it was either headed for the White House or the Capitol building. In my opinion, I think the Capitol building, just because for me that makes the more sense in terms of disrupting shit. Passengers aboard have contacted their families and were informed of the other attacks. Knowing this was part of the plot, the passengers decided to assault the cockpit in an attempt to take back the plane. 
One of the passengers, Todd Beamer, is on the phone with a switchboard operator, Lisa Jefferson. He explains the situation and the plan. The two speak for 13 minutes and even recite a prayer together, both the Lord's Prayer and Psalm 23. Beam then turned to the other passengers and said, Are you ready? Okay, let's roll. Then ends the call. At this point, it is believed the passengers rushed the to the cockpit, overwhelming several hijackers before breaking in. It is unknown exactly what happened, but the recording reveals one of the hijackers shouting, pull it down, pull it down. It is believed the hijackers realized they would not reach their target before being overwhelmed, so decided to take the plane down. At 10.03 a.m., Flight 93 crashes into a field outside of Shanksville, Pennsylvania. At the towers, rescue workers are, are still trying to coordinate efforts to put out the fires and get people out. At 9.58 a.m., Pfeiffer is on the radio when a loud roar causes everyone to freeze. Then, everyone runs towards the escalators before they are enveloped in thick dust, and it goes completely black. They are unaware, but at well, what had happened is the South Tower had just collapsed. Thousands of news cameras filmed the events as people ran for their lives from the debris and dust clouds, which quickly covered southern Manhattan. The steel support beams had suffered great stress from the impact and the fires further diminished their structural integrity. They were not melted, nor was it ever claimed in the official reports that they were melted. But instead, what had happened is that they became structurally unsound. This caused them to bend and eventually the entire top of the building broke free. It collapsed onto the rest of the building, bringing the entire building down. Jules and most of the others in the lobby are unhurt, and Jules's footage is the only known footage from inside the actual collapse. Immediately, Mayday messages are being broadcast all over the radios, and the decision is made to completely evacuate. Jules is asked for some for help by some firefighters because he has one of the stronger lights in his on his camera. He moves over and realizes the firefighters are carrying the lifeless body of Father Judge. He is dead. As Pfeiffer and Jules search for a safe way out, the others carry Judge out another way and lay his body on the altar of St. Peter's Church down the street. He is listed as Casualty 00001, the first official listed death of the attacks. Walking outside, survivors are greeted to a post-apocalyptic scene. At this time, most at the site are unaware the South Tower has collapsed. Battalion chiefs begin preparing to set up another command post, while firefighters in the North Tower begin to evacuate from the stairs. Stunned survivors are wandering the streets in a daze, with confusion from, the, from first responders trying to form a new plan. At 10.28 a.m., the North Tower finally buckles and collapses. Jules is almost directly below the tower when it collapsed, but was saved by Pfeiffer as he's tackled him behind a car. After this, it was decided to completely evacuate the area and regroup. Both collapses have caused further damage to the surrounding area, particularly at WTC7. Debris has crashed through the roof and set an out-of-control fire. The sprinkler system was heavily damaged and would no longer work. After some discussion, it was decided to let WTC uh, Trade Center 7 burn, as attempts to put the fire out posed too much of a risk. At 5.20 p.m., the roof partially caves in, and the inner floors slowly collapse on top of each other. Seconds later, the building implodes. In total, 2,977 people lost their lives in the attacks. This is not counting the hijackers, by the way. 2,606 at the World Trade Centers and surrounding area. 
125 are killed at the Pentagon. 344 firefighters, 71 law enforcement officers are killed at World Trade Center. 55 military personnel are killed at the Pentagon. On Flight 11, 87 people died. On Flight 175, 60 people died. On Flight 77, 59 people died. And on Flight 93, 40 people died. All those at Battalion 1 Firehouse were accounted for. Benetados went missing for several hours but returned to the station later that afternoon. At this point, all flights, like pretty much in American, American North American airspace, are grounded. Yeah. Flights are being diverted. Gander becomes now yeah. a worldwide known. Gander, Newfoundland. Uh, yeah, so op- yeah, you mentioned Operation Yellow Ribbon. Obviously, like basically all of the incoming planes that were in the air needed to land somewhere. So Operation Yellow Ribbon was just a coordinated effort to essentially land all those planes in in Canada. Gander Airport in Newfoundland um, hosted 38 airliners, which totaled 6,100 passengers and 473 crew. So they received more flights than any other Canadian airport involved in the operation, aside from Halifax. And the 6,500 passengers and crew accounted for the third highest total of passengers that landed at a Canadian airport involved in the operation behind, obviously, Vancouver and Halifax, like the really big airports. There's a couple of reasons Gander was chosen. Uh, one, because of its location on the Atlantic, it's obviously just advantageous, but also because it's a it's a large airport because it and it's able to handle really large aircraft. And so Transport Canada and Nav Canada instructed pilots coming from Europe also to avoid airports in Central Canada like Toronto, Pearson, and Montreal. So basically, everyone had to go to Gander. <laughs> But the reception these travelers received is sort of still known as one of the only, like, really happy stories from that day. Because there were 6,000 people landing in a town of um, 11,000. Yeah. So basically, like, the population (laughs) just jumped. And so uh, people had to, there were no, there was no room for everyone. So people were literally staying in the private homes of private citizens in the city and central communities. Communities in in, in Newfoundland were like, yeah, we'll take these people whatever and actually a really cool thing that happened was um a bunch of people who had been stranded in gander started a scholarship fund for the kids of people in gander who had helped them so they were able to send a bunch of kids to university and stuff who like give which is like i guess for people who aren't aware either like newfoundland is actually probably one of the poorer places in canada yeah um and so it's also notoriously one of the friendliest I guess. <laughs> so it tracks. Yeah. But it's just like a really neat story. And um, it's it's definitely the most heartwarming. Yeah. It kind of just on a day when like everything fucking sucks and like it's really shown like the depths of humanity. It also shows like the heights of humanity. At yeah, the same time. absolutely. It, and it, it's it's kind of like that Mr. Rogers thing where it's like during a tragedy, always look for the people running towards, not yeah, the look, people look, running look away. Look for the helpers. Yeah. And so it's always just nice to like see things like that. And then a year after the attack, the first marking the, f- the one year anniversary, the ceremony actually took place in Gander. About, about 2,500 of the 6,600 people that were diverted there actually went back for that ceremony. Yeah. The, the, a good quote that I keep seeing is that we saw the worst of humanity that day, but we also saw some of the best yeah. of humanity that day. Exactly. And it doesn't, it doesn't, you know, make everything better by any means, but it certainly just a bit of a self yeah um like i remember um hearing that uh in in the weeks after 9-11 all the blood donation clinics in new york 
had to had to keep turning people away because they they were getting too much yeah blood donations. blood donations. But I also remember like how much I, I hesitate to say this word, but paranoia yeah. in in the moments afterwards because there was always like because there's like always rumors like going around. It's like I remember apparently there was a rumor that the New York Medical Center had been bombed, which turned out to be not true. Yeah, there was a lot of like just no one knew anything so no one knew if other places had been bombed like yeah there was a lot of like potential other places that were and like if there was going to be another wave of attacks like yeah. was this a decoy is there going to be another one right is there... <laughs> they didn't at this point really knew know who did it like definitively know who did yeah. it the rescue and recovery situation was pretty uh intense the way the way the rescue efforts went is that uh particularly with the fire department they were 24 hours on working at the site and then 24 hours off yeah and they would rotate day to day so imagine working like they were they were down there for weeks doing like attempting rescue efforts and whatnot and sadly they uh one one of the guys in the documentary the the nando brothers documentary he said um we didn't uh, he's like the the largest piece of a telephone i found was like that big i know you can't see it on but he but he's like to think that we like like to think that we were going to find a body or find someone alive down there it it felt hopeless so you could because he's like i didn't find a whole thing of anything i didn't find an intact computer telephone nothing and it's just like holy shit but miraculously some people were actually rescued yeah the day after the attacks, 11 people were rescued from the rubble, including six firefighters and three police officers. One woman was rescued from the rubble near where a West Side Highway pedestrian bridge had been. Two Port Authority police officers uh, were also rescued. They were discovered by former U.S. R- Marines, and they were pulled out af- alive after spending nearly 24 hours beneath 30 feet of rubble. So nine meters of rubble. The rescue was later portrayed in the Oliver Stone film World Trade Center. I actually never watched it. It's it's not great to be honest. I'm sorry to say that it's not it's not great. I never really seen a movie. I mean, based... it came out literally four years after the five yeah. years after the attack. Too, I, so. I haven't seen a movie based around those events that I could consider good. No. Um, in total, 26 survivors were pulled from the rubble. The final survivor, Port Authority Secretary Janelle Guzman McMillan, was rescued 27 hours after the collapse of the North Tower. Some firefighters and civilians who survived made cell phone calls from the voids beneath the rubble though the amount of debris made it difficult for rescue workers to get to them. A lot of firefighters were trapped inside the buildings because there was poor radio communication during some of the rescue, and so during like the actual attack, trying to get people out, and so a lot of people, unfortunately. By Wednesday night, 82 deaths had been confirmed by officials in New York City, um, and our rescue efforts were also paused a lot in the following days because there was a lot of concern about the ne- nearby buildings in terms of like their structural integrity and whether or not they were going to start collapsing as well. The rescue effort in the immediate, immediate aftermath involved iron workers, structural engineers, heavy machinery operators, asbestos workers, boiler makers, carpenters, cement masons, construction managers, electricians, insulators, machinists, plumbers, and pipe fitters, riggers, sheet metal workers, steel workers, truckers, teamsters, American Red, Off, Red Cross volunteers, and many, many others. Yeah. People from like police departments and fire departments across the United States took leaves of absence to go to, the, to New York to help work. There were about 400 working dogs, which was the largest deployment of working dogs in the nation's history. 
it was really probably one of the largest scale recovery efforts in American history, I think. Probably. Oh, it has to be one of the largest recovery efforts in the world. Yeah. The New York City Office of Emergency Management was the agency responsible for coordination of the city's response. And it was headed by then director Richard Sh- uh, Schreier. But the agency was forced to vacate its headquarters, which was located in Seven World Trade Center within hours of the attack. So uh, the building later collapsed. So it's probably good they got out of there. OEM reestablished operations temporarily at the police academy, where Mayor Giuliani gave many press conferences throughout the afternoon and the evening. By Friday, rescue and reliefs were organized and administered from Pier 92 on the Hudson River. Volunteers quickly descended to help at the Jacob Javits Convention Center. Thousands of people showed up to offer their help where um, they registered with the authorities. Construction projects around the city came to a halt as workers walked off the job to help at uh, Ground Zero, as obviously these trade skills were really in high demand. By the end of the first week, over a thousand iron workers from across North America had arrived to help along with countless others. And I think actually like probably one of the sadder parts, that was not really that sad, I guess, in consideration, but just like when we talk about the recovery and, and the people who get all the credit, obviously like the fire department and the police officers and stuff get like the most, and the EMS get like the heap of the credit, but like all of the other tradesmen and tradespeople who showed up, like iron workers and sheet metal workers and the people who never get that glory, yeah, but are like the blue collar of blue collar workers really played such an immensely important role. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like they aren't really honored as much. No, no. And I understand why the firefighter, like why the first responders are. And it's are. not to say they don't deserve that credit. Yeah. Like, I, I don't want to come across no, as like, I, oh, we're and praising I know them that, too yeah. much. It's I know just that, like, yeah. I don't think we're praising the tradespeople and the laborers enough. <laughs> yeah, no. You know, or they yeah. don't necessarily get the same recognition. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess some of that is also just probably a little bit in relation to how we talk about like labor and just like labor never really gets the <laughs> recognition. Yeah, I think so too. Um, Should also mention uh, Steve Buscemi. Mm-hmm. He uh, he used to be a New York firefighter before he became an actor. He actually went back to his old firehouse mm-hmm. and helped search for the rubble as well. Yeah. I don't know. I, I like Steve Buscemi, so I just I love him, yeah. up. Uh, so. Yeah. The New York City Department of Design and Construction oversaw the recovery efforts. Beginning on September 12th, the Structural Engineers Association of New York uh, became involved in the recovery efforts, bringing in experts to review the stability of the rubble, evaluate the safety of hundreds of buildings near the site, and design support for the cranes brought in to clear clear debris. The City of New York hired an engineering firm to oversee the structural engineering operations on the site, and it was to make things more manageable. The World Trade Center site was divided into four quadrants. So each zone was assigned a lead contractor and a team of structural engineers, subcontractors, and rescue workers. The North Tower along West Street was to AMEC. Uh, Bovis Lend-Lease had the South, Sen- South Tower along Liberty Street. Tully Construction Company was in the eastern portion of the World Trade Center site. And Turner Plaza Construction Joint Venture was at the northern portion and Seven World Trade Center. I've seen that site. I saw that site while they were still cleaning it up in 2004. Oh, shit. Or... 2003 sorry one of the heaviest moments of my life i was still quite young but and uh they still had that um there's that cross made up of bits of the building i don't know if you remember hearing about that i'm sorry or seeing that cross they made a cross out of bits of the building yeah that was still standing there and honestly seeing that it just i just remember it giving me the chills very sad experience for yeah. sure so um now of course it's all new all new buildings and stuff like that but yeah, yeah. 
So the pile, as the debris was termed, coined by the rescue workers, described 1.8 million tons of wreckage. They avoided the use of the term ground zero because that described the epicenter, describes the epicenter of a bomb explosion. So they called it the pile. Um, numerous volunteers volu- organized to form quote-unquote bucket brigades, which passed five-gallon buckets full of debris down a line to investigators who sifted through the debris in search of evidence and human remains. Iron workers helped cut, cut up steel beams into more manageable sizes for removal. Much of the debris was hauled off to the Fresh Kills landfill on Staten Island, where it was further searched and sorted. According to the New York Times, by September 24, 2001, more than 100,000 tons of debris had been removed from the site. Some structural engineers have criticized the decision to recycle the steel from the buildings before it could be analyzed as part of the post-collapse investigation. Yeah. Some of the steel was reused for memorials. Uh, New York City firefighters donated a cross made of steel from the World Trade Center to the Shanksville Volunteer Fire Company in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. Uh, The beam mounted atop a platform shaped like the Pentagon was erected outside the Shanksville Firehouse near the crash site of the United Airlines Airlines Flight 93. So 24 tons of steel used in the construction of the USS New York came from a small amount of rubble from the World Trade Center preserved for posterity. So, yeah. But ultimately, like, American society suffered as a whole dramatically from everything. Like, recovery took years, and the economy declined drastically after the attacks. Another unfortunate, I guess result of the attacks was an increase in hate crimes against american muslim and sikh populations um sikhs were targeted due to stereotype because of turbans being associated with islam even though they really have nothing to do with each other um just really shows the ignorance involved here on september 15th belbir singh sodi was at a gas station he owned in mesa arizona helping a landscaper to plant flower pots in the grass nearby He was originally from Punjab, India, and as he was doing so, a man approached him and shot him several times, killing him. The suspect then drove off and 20 minutes later shot at a Lebanese-American clerk. The clerk escaped injury, uh, but the suspect then fired into the house owned by an Afghan family before heading to a local bar. Because I guess that's what you do after you shoot at people in Arizona? What I was reading, he went back into the local bar and said uh, they're... They're, hey guys, they're investigating the murder of some turban head down the street. I apologize for the use of that term, but that's pretty much, that's what he said. Sounds like a classy guy. Yeah. The suspect was arrested the next day for an unrelated incident, but the things he said, he quickly let investigators determine he was the shooter, so it's also not very bright. Um, According to the testimony, those who knew the suspect stated he would frequently go on anti-immigration and anti-Muslim tirades, which increased following the attack. The shooter stood trial in August 2003, where he was eventually found guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced to death. Sodi's murder was the first in what would become a string of anti-Muslim attacks against innocent people. Up to 645 incidents were reported of violence against Muslims, Arabs, and persons suspected or mistaken to be of Middle Eastern origin between September 11th and 17th alone. This doesn't consider the number of reported vandalism and arsons during this time. And it also doesn't account for the continued... Like, yeah, I mean, like to, to even to this day, like there's still so much at, like against the muslim population and the sikh population as i've personally witnessed mm-hmm. i mean i'm not saying that that like it happened to me but i it has happened to people i'm close to and people i've worked for it's i mean to to paint all these people with the same brush is ignorant and stupid even now, like, I know a lot of, it's really a rough time around 9-11 for 
Muslim Americans and even just Muslims in general, because people decide that it's the time to take out all of their anger and like and take it out on people who had nothing to do with this. Who like even people who probably like I'm sure there are people who lost loved ones in the attacks, who were attacked or who were attacked in retaliation. Yeah. This, which is... And the other thing too is it's not just private people being hateful and shitty. Like the government also was part of it. Yeah. I mean, um, as much as I guess you can give Bush credit for, you know, after the attack, saying like, let's not, you know. There are lots of good yeah, Muslims. He would, specific, he would specifically say we're not at war with Islam. We are at war with a fanatical. Yeah. And so, like, I'll give him credit for that. But, I mean, yeah, look, unfortunately, the Patriot Act and a bunch of other, yeah, laws. We don't go like into the Patriot Act because, honestly, looking at it, I, it was like grinding nails into our head. Yeah. It's so confusing. It's basic- so fucked up. Yeah. But basically, like... Mass arrests and deportations of Arabs and Arab Americans were conducted by various government organizations, including the FBI, often with very little evidence to connect them to terrorism, but they found ways to do it. Lots were in- incarcerated indefinitely without notifying their relatives, um, as if they had just disappeared. Yeah, uh, you, you'll talk about Guantanamo, so we'll get there. But Islamophobia basically like was always there, but then 9-11 really just like kicked it into high gear. And I don't think it's ever really like stopped since then, to be honest. No, the way I would say it is that it seemed that 9-11 gave permission for these people to act out yeah. on it. And I'm not, I'm not, like, obviously I'm not saying that's right. It's wrong. And yeah, unfortunately it hasn't gotten much better since. So yeah, but yeah, something else that was happening kind of in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, there was some other attacks, some other terrorist attacks that, We'll probably actually talk about this more like in depth in its own episode because it's really an interesting thing and kind of relevant still. And something that honestly I still fear um, the most (laughs) in lots of ways. But uh, on October 2nd, Robert Stevens of Sun Tabloid was rushed to hospital due to breathing difficulties. His condition deteriorated significantly over the next few days and he died on October 5th. His autopsy revealed he was infected with anthrax, which is an, an infectious bacterial disease. It was initially believed to be an isolated incident and a result of a freak accident while he was hiking. Um, just to be clear, it's really difficult to catch anthrax. Yeah, it is. But um, uh, yeah, like it's it it infects only like two thousand people a year. I yeah. was looking up. It's also quite easy to treat because you just like basically it's a cocktail of antitoxins and and, and antibiotics because it is a bacterial yeah. disease it's so just, yeah. unlike covid which is a virus yeah and then but this is actually a organic bac- bacteria yeah. and you usually get it from working with like i think livestock yeah. is, is a big one and there as you as, as Lindsay will say later it's like contracted through spores yeah um, on october 8th anthrax spores were detected in the boca raton offices of american media famous for publishing the national Enquirer. the building is then placed in quarantine Over the next month, several more people were confirmed to be infected with anthrax. Five in total would die, while a further 17 were infected but managed to recover. Anthrax can easily be treated with antibiotics and antitoxins, but requires immediate attention, just like Jonah said. Among the victims were Senator for South Dakota Tom Daschle and Senator for for Vermont Patrick Leahy. Both would make a recovery. FBI investigations quickly led them to a series of letters received by each of the victims. 
In them, traces of anthrax spores were detected, along with a note reading, 091101. This is next. Take penicillin now. Death to America. Death to Israel. Allah is great. Instantly, Al-Qaeda involvement, or at least inspiration, was suspected. The earliest letter was dated September 18th. The New York Post and NBC News were among locations who received letters with employees of ABC, CBS, and AMI being infected also. Panic had struck the American public, who was still very much in post-9-11 fear, and now faced with the possibility of attacks coming through something as small as a letter. Which would be... I actually sort of remember this happening, like... I don't have a, like, a very strong memory of it, but I do remember it enough. I, and, like, it's yeah. still kind of fucking terrifying. Yeah, I, it, I, I vaguely remember hearing something about it, but then it, like... You'll go on and you'll yeah, understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. However, so obviously this never came, this attack. Uh, following the death of Otili Lundgren, the letters were suddenly ceased and never reappeared. The trail ran cold. Several suspects were investigated but later exonerated from any wrongdoing, with focus still on Al-Qaeda's possible involvement. The case took a turn in early 2002 when Nancy Haywood, an HIV-AIDS researcher at the University of Washington, received a photo from a former significant other named Bruce Ivins. In the photo, um, Ivans was seen holding a petri dish containing Bacillus anthracis bacteria. She would later say to the media, quote, that awful moment was when I knew it was him. Hagwood immediately contacted the FBI, but instead of considering him a suspect, they instead sought out his expertise on the bacteria. He happily cooperated with the FBI while they pursued their prime suspect. Several colleagues and friends expressed their suspicion of Ivans' involvement due to his long struggle with mental illness and other behavior. The mailbox tracing or traced to the mailing of the first letter was, in fact, across the street from Kappa Kappa Gamma House, a place he would frequently break into. It wasn't until 2003 when the FBI obtained an actual batch of anthrax Ivans was working with, and sure enough, the strain matched those used in the attack. Further tests later confirmed the strains were the same. FBI quickly eliminated the remaining suspects via alibis, except for Ivans, in 2006. Ivan's demeanor towards the FBI began to change at this time, quickly becoming more erratic and opening up about his break-ins to Kappa Kappa Gamma. The FBI were also beginning to close in on Ivan's, and was placed, who was placed in psychiatric care on July 10th when he claimed that he had bought body armor, a firearm, and ammunition to kill his co-workers. On July 29th, Ivan's died from an overdose of pills before he could be formally charged. Um, today, he is widely considered the sole perpetrator in the anthrax attacks. Um, his motives are widely unknown but it is most likely a result of mental illness left unproperly treated. Um, and he also actually, I'm now really struggling to remember where I heard this, but it was a podcast. There was like some funding issues. He'd like recently yeah. he'd gone through some like tumultuous things in his life as well. Yeah. he That triggered probably. There is a, like, what, what, if we, like, I'm sure we're going to do a whole episode yeah, on this. Like he, his, like when you learn about his life growing up, you're just like, holy shit. Yeah. This man should never have been around. Um, and he was, he was very like um, definitely his mental illness was not properly treated, no, no, and no. that's unfortunately seems to be the case in a lot of these kinds of yeah things. But we'll talk more about anthrax later. But uh, kind of the last like major event that happened right after on November twelfth, two thousand one, New York residents were horrified when American Airlines Flight five eighty seven plummeted to the ground and crashed into the residential neighborhood of Bell Harbor in Queens. The flight had just taken off from JFK Airport en route to the Dominican Republic. I do not remember this crash happening at all. I know it happened, obviously, yeah. but I just don't remember it. Given the timing just a month and a day after 9-11, security throughout New York was heavily increased, with the Empire State Building, UN headquarters, and various other buildings being evacuated. 
Panic also gripped the country, and rumors quickly spread that the cat crash was a result of terrorism. However, the NTSB investigation concluded that the crash was the result of the plane's vertical stabilizer being lost. This was the result of turbulence created by another aircraft, which had just taken off before, inducing stress on the stabilizer and causing it to rip away from the aircraft. This was fur further attributed to pilot error as the pilots attempted, attempted to stabilize the aircraft in the turbulence. Unfortunately, all on board, 260 in total, along with five others on the ground, were killed. I, 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 it's like, I'm, I, I know you said that you don't remember this. Yeah. I didn't either. I honestly did not find out about this crash until I watched a episode of Air Crash Investigation like a couple Mayday? years ago. <laughs> no, it wasn't Mayday. It was, unless it's the same. It's, it's the same. Show. Okay. Yeah. Then, yeah. They May, just have I watched, two different titles watched, based on which country you Yeah, watch. I watched it. Then it was an episode of Mayday. But yeah, I didn't <laughs> find out about this until. I think Air Crash Investigations is what it's called in Australia. The UK, maybe? The UK, yeah. 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 Um, Great but yeah, show. I Big didn't, fan. yeah, and um, I didn't know about this crash until maybe like th maybe four years ago, yeah. And it's like, whoa, but yeah, literally November 12th, it happened <sighs> on, so yeah, I can understand why people were freaking the fuck out, yeah, me too. Al Qaeda expectations of what would happen following the attack were unclear. Retired Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Stability Operations and a veteran U.S. Army colonel theorized they theorized it was believed that the United States would be slow to respond due to resources being diverted towards an investigation into the attacks. He based this hypothesis on the reactions to the 1983 Marine Barracks bombing, the 1993 World Trade Center bombing, the 1996 Kobar Towers attack in, in Saudi Arabia, and the USS Cole attack. The attacks, while causing an outpour of sorrow and grieving, also sparked anger, as Lindsay mentioned above, amongst the populace and government. The Bush administration demanded Mullah Omar detain and extradite bin Laden to the United States. Omar refused, which was probably the dumbest decision of his life. Bush then turned to Congress where a joint resolution was authorized, which reads, quote, to use all necessary and appropriate force against those nations, organizations, or persons he determines planned, authorized, committed, or aided the terrorist attacks that occurred on September 11, 2001, or harbored such organizations or persons in order to prevent any further acts of international terrorism against the United States by any such nations, organizations, or persons. If anyone knows how to properly do run-on sentences, it is the United States Congress. <laughs> the United States had a strange relationship with Pakistan prior to the attacks, as Pakistan had openly supported the Taliban due to its desire to gain more influence in Afghanistan, which... Supporting the Taliban, but while also being supported by the United States, which with the Taliban now complicit in the terrorist attacks, that's kind of awkward. CIA Special Activities Division and Counterterrorism Center agents were covertly deployed to Afghanistan on, on September 26. Their mission was to link up with the Northern Alliance in Panjshir Valley, as well as gather intelligence on the area. Airstrikes on Afghanistan began on October 7th, with targets in Kabul, Kandahar, and Jalalabad. These inflicted heavy damage against air defense systems and communications. During this time, the Northern Alliance attempted an offensive, but it became stalemated with no ground gained on either side. Green Berets were deployed on October 18th via Uzbekistan, linking up with the CIA team and Northern Alliance. The helicopters which transported them there broke the world record for combat rotorcraft mission concerning length of time airborne. 
British SAS were also deployed at this time. Operation Enduring Freedom became the official name of the intervention in Afghanistan. It was a joint effort of the United States, Canada, the United Kingdom, Australia, and the Northern Alliance. They also received support from countless other countries such as India, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, Saudi Arabia, and even Russia and Iran. So uh, the enemy of my enemy is less of an enemy, I guess. Funny, interesting fact, uh, Putin was the first uh, international leader to phone Bush and offer support following the attacks. Phase 1 relied on airstrikes, along with special forces operations in conjunction with the Northern Alliance. It was mainly what Collins referred to as a, quote, network-centric military operations, end quote. The coalition would provide air support, while special forces would be giving strategic advice and assault support. The first major offensive on the stage of the war occurred between November 9th and 10th. Northern Alliance with American Special Forces launched an offensive on the city of Majir-e-Sharif in Afghanistan's far north, the fourth largest city in the country. In the morning of the 9th, American Spec Ops called in airstrikes from their spotting positions in the mountains. Despite the Taliban retaliating with BM-21 Grad missiles, these had no effects and they were quickly destroyed by the air cover. Following the strikes, Northern Alliance forces began their assault on the city using combined foot soldier, horseback, technical trucks, and some captured APCs. They were able to push into the main military base facing only light resistance. Airstrikes proved devastating, and the around 1,200 strong, 12,000 strong, excuse me, Taliban slash Al-Qaeda forces began to flee the city. The battle was a decisive victory for the Northern Alliance, who lost less than 40 fighters, while the Taliban slash Al-Qaeda lost over 300, along with over 500 captured and 1,000 more who simply defected. The following day, the Northern Alliance and American Spec Ops moved in, in onto Kunduns, where the Taliban and other fighters were attempting to regroup, laying siege to the city. The city was again attacked via airstrikes, while the Northern Alliance kept up their fortifications surrounding the city. After nearly two weeks, the Taliban commander finally surrendered. Following the battle, controversy arose after the deaths of between 250 and 2,000 Taliban prisoners. Most were either shot or suffocated to death inside a metal, containing sh uh, sh metal shipping container while en route to Shiburgan prison. It has also been alleged American forces were involved, although there is no, evidence, there is no credible evidence to support this. An investigation into burial sites used following the massacre found evidence the sites had been tampered with, leading some to believe attempts to cover up the atrocities were made. Rashid Dostram, leader of Junbish-e-Mili, whose members were supervising the transfer, continued to deny the massacre took place as recent as 2009. During the siege of Kunduns, Northern Alliance, with aid from the United States and Iran, managed to coordinate and spark an uprising in Herat. Herat is a primarily Tajik and Farsiwan populated area, most of whom speak Persian as the native language, given its location close to the Iranian border and its historical part of the Persian empires. Unlike much of, of Afghanistan, Persian is the lingua franca in Herat, as opposed to Pashtun. It is also Afghanistan's third largest city. The uprising was the result of American airstrikes against the Taliban targets in the city, which helped inspire some of the locals to attack local uh, Taliban officials with anything they could, sticks, rocks, etc. 
With the locals becoming antagonistic, the American bombings and the Northern Alliance pushing into the city, the Taliban garrison fled into the mountains along with along the Afghan-Iranian border. Mazar became a foothold to, Kab to Kabul and the Northern Alliance began their approach to Kabul, reaching it by the 13th. By this time, Kabul had been hit hard by the coalition airstrikes, with the Taliban forces mostly retreating out of the city. The Northern Alliance and American Spec Ops engaged Taliban forces in the Shamali Plain north of Kabul, where, where the two sides had been stalemated since the Taliban took control. This time, the Taliban fighters were too demoralized and beaten down to put up a stiff resistance and retreated to Kabul within three hours. The following day, Northern Alliance entered Kabul with no resistance. They at first tried to prevent their forces from entering, but eager soldiers pushed in anyway, taking the city. Yeah, they were mostly like, come on, we're here, let's go. Yeah. And the commander's like, no, 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 wait, wait, wait. <laughs> Instances of violence against Taliban remaining in Kabul were reported, with some being lynched, shot, or beaten. The Northern Alliance quickly disregarded the Taliban's ban on music and kite flying, and the streets were filled with music. Barber shops were also packed with people waiting to have their beards shaved as it become mandatory to grow a beard under the Taliban rule. There were growing concerns over what the capture of Kabul would do for stability. The Northern Alliance was mostly comprised of minority groups such as, such as Tajiks, Uzbeks, and others, while the Taliban predominantly comprised of the majority Pashtun. American forces shifted their attention to Kandahar in the south, the country's second largest city and also the birthplace of the Taliban. American forces nearby linked up with the resistance loyal to Hamid Karzai, a Pashtun national both who's both pro-Western and opposed to the Taliban rule, which at this point had actually become rare <laughs> to be both. His forces had suffered greatly to Taliban offensives, so spec ops raced to their locations in hope of saving Karzai and his fighters. Taliban forces were quick were quickly approaching the city of the town of Tarin Kot on, on November 14th. In response, American airstrikes were called on the convoy in conjunction with Karzai ground forces. The Taliban were taken by surprise by the airstrikes and panic, scattering to get away. This bought time for the militia and American forces to regroup and coordinate. Starting on November 30th, Karzai's militia with American and Australian SASR support pushed through the various passages towards Kandahar City, taking village after village, with mostly without resistance. They pushed onto the side Alim Kalai Bridge, where they were stalled by Taliban resistance on the other side. More airstrikes were called in, and a two-day bombardment ensued. This resulted in the Taliban withdrawing and Karzai's militia capturing the bridge. Tragically, an American bomb mistargeted the, and landed on friendly position. This killed three American spec ops and wounded Karzai. However, his forces maintained their positions and began negotiations with the Taliban for them to surrender Kandahar. Further problems arose as the local anti-Taliban fighters were disorganized and uncoordinated with little to no weapons or ammo. The various groups were also hostile with one another. On December 7th, special forces supported by those loyal to Gul Aga Sherzai began an assault on the city's airport, but were, were again met with little resistance. Following the airport's capture, they were shocked to discover the rest of the city had already resembled had already surrendered to Karzai. Following the collapse of Taliban control, bin Laden and Al-Qaeda forces withdrew to the Tora Bora region 20 kilometers from the Pakistani border. 
There, they had a network of caves acting as a sort of headquarters. Following a tip of bin Laden's locations, forces from the newly proclaimed Islamic State of Afghanistan, along with American, British, and German special forces, moved into the area in hopes of capturing or killing bin Laden. Movement was slow due to the between 10,000 and 12,000 feet mountains in the area. The combined forces eventually set up a post overlooking the canyon Al-Qaeda was located and began calling in airstrikes. For 17 hours nonstop, airstrikes and gunfire fell into the canyon. It was a hard-fought battle, with coalition taking ground during the day but forced to retreat at night. Furthermore, the cave fighting was extremely tense and dangerous, with each cave needing to be thoroughly searched. Most of the Al-Qaeda preferred to fight to the death rather than be captured. By mid-December, the last cave complex had been cleared, but bin Laden had managed to escape in the chaos. He would remain on the run for the next nine and a half years. The Taliban quickly retreated into the rural and remote areas of the country, setting up insurgency operations against coalition and Afghan forces. The second phase of Operation Enduring Freedom began in March 2002 with Operation Anaconda. By now, regular ground forces from the United States, Australia, UK, Canada, Germany, France, Norway, Denmark, Turkey, and New Zealand had been deployed to Afghanistan. Anaconda was in a military offensive against the Taliban and Al-Qaeda around the Sheldkot Valley, beginning on March 1st. Most of the fighting took place in high elevation, often over 3,000 feet in the air. The Taliban and Al-Qaeda were using the peaks as observation posts, as well as setting up Dishka positions. Dishkas are a type of heavy machine gun that can, I think they're armor piercing, but yeah, they're scary. (laughs) Uh, To shoot down coalition helicopters. Initially, element of surprise was lost during the night of March 1st. Special forces were spotted and a firefight began. The assault team was forced to retreat and an AC-130 gunship rained fire down on, em- on the enemy location. Canadian and American snipers, along with Afghan forces, entered the valley the next day, tasked with observing insurgent movements and taking out positions they found along the way. Coalition forces were not prepared to deal with the well-disciplined and organized Taliban fighters they were, that were in the region, particularly after the initial invasion. On March 4th, U.S. Navy SEALs were transported to Tekirgar Ridge, Their mission was to push on a location codenamed The Whale in a search-and-destroy mission. The Chinook helicopter transport was struck by machine gun fire and two RPG rounds. The Chinook crashed into the mountain with the survivors now surrounded by enemy forces. Neil C. Roberts fell from the helicopter as it spun as he was not tethered to the aircraft, and he fell between 5 and 15 feet to the ground. The heli crashed about 7 kilometers from where Roberts had fallen and quickly worked to form a new plan. The second team, Razor 4, redirected their heli to the attempt, in an attempt to rescue Roberts, but they came under immediate fire, immediate fire, forcing it to head out and deploy the troops nearby. Razor 4 made its way to the crash site and regrouped with the SEALs. Razor 1 also changed course to the crash site, while Razor 2 diverted back into t- the town of Gardez. On approach... To a landing site, Razor 1 came under fire and its gunner, Philip Svitak, was killed and pilots Chief Warrant Officer Greg Calvert and Chuck Grant were seriously wounded. After the tail rotor was hit by an RPG, it too was forced to make a crash landing. Razor 2 quickly re-geared and returned to the mountain but had to land further down due to heavy fire from above. The team of army rangers now needed to walk towards 
the walk upwards towards the peak. It soon came under fire from Al-Qaeda mortar fire and had the press on under constant bombardment. As the exhausted rangers of Razor 1 reached 50 meters from the enemy position, they called in danger close fire missions on the location with several aircraft performing suppression runs. Razor 2 eventually reached their target and stormed the hill, taking out all enemy fighters at the position. Medical evacuation requests were refused during the day, fearful another chopper would be lost. The soldiers were forced to wait well into the evening until they were eventually airlifted out. From, Ranger or from Razor 3, Master Sergeant John Chapman and the rest of the team volunteered to attempt to rescue Roberts. As they approached where Roberts had fallen, they came under fire from enemy forces. Chapman charged forward, firing and killing two insurgents. Chapman was struck by gunfire coming from three different directions and succumbed to his wounds. It is disputed how exactly he died, but it was either from the wounds he sustained during the firefight or he was shot in the back of the head by insurgents as they reached him. Seven American soldiers died in the assault, including Roberts, who died either from the fall or further injuries after, and a further 12 were wounded. Both Chinooks were destroyed beyond repair. The battle, known commonly as the Battle of Tucker Gar, is also known as the Battle of Roberts Ridge, named in honor of Roberts as the first casualty. Sergeant J Jason D. Cunningham, Chapman, and Technical Sergeant Kiri J. Miller were awarded the Air Force Cross for their actions during the battle, the former two posthumously. In 2018, Chapman was posthumously awarded the Medal of Honor along with fellow service person Britt K. Slabinski, who survived the battle. Canada's first casualties in the conflict occurred on April 17, 2002. Members of 3rd Battalion, Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry Battle Group, were taking part in an anti-tank and machine gun exercise at a captured Taliban base outside of Kandahar. Two American F-16s piloted by Major William Umbach and Major Harry Schmidt were en route back to base when they reported what they believed was surface-to-air fire. Schmidt requested permission to engage, but orders came back to hold fire. A minute later, Schmidt reported more fire and unknown forces on the road. He stated it appeared to be artillery firing at them. Schmidt dropped one of his bombs and reported a direct hit. Ten seconds later, controllers ordered the pilots to wave off, stating it had just hit friendly units. Sergeant Mark D. Ledger, Corporal Answorth Dyer, and Privates Richard Green and Nathan Lloyd Smith were killed. A further eight were injured. Both Umbach and Schmidt were, or were initially charged with negligent manslaughter, aggravated assault, and dereliction of duty. Later, however, Umbach's charges were dropped and Schmidt was reduced to dereliction of duty. Schmidt was found guilty, ordered to pay a $5,700 fine, and was reprimanded. Umbach was also reprimanded with Lieutenant General Bruce Carlson, stating he, quote, exercised a total lack of basic flight discipline, end quote. He wrote on Umbach that he demonstrated major failures in leadership and Umbach was essentially forced to retire. On December 5, 2001, an interim government was established in Afghanistan. The conference included members from the Northern Alliance factions and former king of Afghanistan. The Taliban was not invited. In the resulting Bonn Agreement, Hamid Karzai was named head of the interim administration. In June 2002, the interim government called what is known as a Loya Jirga, or Grand Council. This is a massive gathering of representatives from the various religious, ethnic, and tribal communities around the country. Loya Jirgas also, are also called to address national issues and have been used for centuries. 
The Loya Jirga took place in the halls of the Kabul Polytechnic University. It was formerly opened by the former King Mohammed Zahir Shah. It was also the first such meeting where women were present, 220 out of a total 1,500 delegation. A majority of the interim government was from ethnic Tajiks of Northern Alliance, which was the main issue with the majority Pashtun population. They wanted a more fairly represented administration following the transition. Because of this, interior minister, the interior minister agreed to resign in order to allow more ethnic representation in the government. Buradan Rabani withdrew his candidacy for head of state in favor of Karzai. The meeting was not without conflict. There were instances of intimidation from the National Directorate of Security. On June 12th, German security forces arrested several members after they pointed their firearms. The Loya Jirga was also dominated by warlords, meaning various voices were drowned out, including that of women. On June 13th, in a secret ballot, Karzai was elected president of the transitional administration. Karzai was given a two-year term during which he was to draft and adopt a new constitution followed by democratic elections. Karzai's presidency is controversial and he has been known to have committed voter fraud during his tenure and has been accused of corruption. Yeah, Karzai's a weird topic in a lot of ways because like you either really love him or you really hate him. On August 11, 2003, the United Nations authorized NATO to take command of operations in Afghanistan. This mission was named International Security Assistance Force, or ISAF. Its objective was, quote, to enable the Afghan government to provide effective security across the country and develop new Afghan security forces to ensure Afghanistan would never again be a, become a safe haven for terrorists, end quote, which is rather awkward now. All 29 NATO members were involved in the mission, along with 11 states from the Euro-Atlantic Partnership Council and a further 13 unaffiliated with either. The United States made up half of the troops' deployment to Afghanistan, followed by the UK. I was going to talk about Guantanamo Bay, but I've talked about this with Lindsay. That kind of needs its own episode. Basically, what you need to know about Guantanamo Bay is it's a prison camp on the Guantanamo Bay U.S. Naval Base in Cuba which is controversial on its own. Prisoners are held there without formal charge and they're not following the Geneva Convention, or at least weren't. There's been many efforts. They, these are people suspected as high-ranking members of the Taliban or Al-Qaeda or any other terrorist organization, really. So uh, we're gonna, we'll, do our own we'll do a whole episode on that eventually. Just know that it's very controversial. The use of torture was rampant. In other developments, um, so following following the attacks, uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed went on the run, hiding in Pakistan as NATO invaded Afghanistan. Uh, the Pakistani ISI claimed on September 11, 2002, that Mohammed was killed in a raid in Karachi, though this was proved false soon after. Mohammed was located in the then northwest frontier province of Pakistan, near the Afghan border. He was in the process of planning further attacks in Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, the UK, and the United States. His luck began to run out during a series of raids in Pakistan and elsewhere through throughout 2002 and into 2003. In February, a group of neighbors became suspicious of mysterious, mysterious men, mysterious even, grouped outside a nearby home, and authorities, authorities took them into custody. This turned out to be a major Al-Qaeda safe house, and the men, who frequent, who, the men took frequent smoke breaks, which in turn broke their cover. Idiots. It's always something, sorry. It's always something like that, I'm telling you. Fucking dummies. <laughs> Smoke out the window. God. 
Anyway, soon the CIA contacted an associate of Mohammed, known simply as Baluchi, due to his origin in Baluchistan. 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 He managed to get back in touch and meet with Mohammed at a safe house in Mardin, Pakistan. After leaving the house, he had gave his contacts the location of the house. At 2 a.m. March 1st, Pakistani authorities raided the home and Mohammed was captured alive. He was then handed over to the CIA. From here, Mohammed experienced hours and hours and hours of torture at several CIA quote-unquote black sites around the world. He was reportedly waterboarded up to 108 waterboarded up to 183 times, although the CIA disputes this saying that the number was that was the number of times water was poured. I call bull so much better. I call bullshit though. I totally call bullshit. Well, also cuz like as if saying he had water poured on him 183 times is better than being waterboarded on her yeah. the same thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, like they, they say there was 183 sessions. Yeah. But they're like, no, that's just the amount of times yeah, that it no. was poured. It's like, no, I don't. I think you're called bullshit. I'm quite sure you I, tortured the shit out of him. I just want to talk quickly about waterboarding because yeah. I'm sure people, I, I'm sure people heard about it. But waterboarding they don't know what at Guantanamo Bay sounds like a great time until you realize what waterboarding and Guantanamo Bay are. Yeah. I, I've heard that joke yeah. somewhere, yeah. Um, but um, it's a bad, it's a dark joke, but yeah. Yep. Welcome to Panastoria. Uh, what happens is some, they put a cloth over your face. Uh, they they strap you down, first of all, and then they pour a cl- put a cloth over your face and then pour a jug of water over the cloth. And I've heard it described as, quote unquote, simulated drowning. Mm-hmm. But it's not simulated. You are actually drowning. So, yep. yeah, that's it. There's some other um, unsavory methods that I'm not going to discuss. If you want to learn about them, watch the John Oliver mm, yeah. one, one about it. So, yeah, where he gets Helen Mirren to read out the read out how how they're done, because he's like, we wanted some way to make this more pleasing. Literally. Anyways. Uh, yeah. So Mohammed's trial was. For his role in the September 11th attacks began when charges against him were announced on February 11th, 2008, along with four other defendants. There are a total of eight charges against him. Due to various legal issues, including the transferring of trial back and forth between military and civilian legal courts, his trial date was only set on August 30th, 2019 to begin January 11th, 2021. And then there's Osama. He became public enemy number one following the attacks, obviously. Um, I think he had the largest bounty on his head on the FBI most wanted list, like ever. I, I think, think so too. After his supposed ex- supposed escape from Tora Bora, Bin Laden virtually vanished, and a worldwide manhunt ensued. There were countless false leads and testimony, including the suspicion he had lied or he had died during the invasion or sometime after. One of his wives later testified Bin Laden joined his family in Peshawar following the escape from Af- following his escape from Afghanistan. He would spend much of the next few years going from safe house to safe house and hide out and to hide out in the mountains. Unfortunately, much of this time is unknown or unconfirmed. In March 2005, Bin Laden and his family were moved into a secure compound in Abbottabad. The compound housed high concrete walls, barbed wire, and was heavily guarded. The CIA spent the next five years attempting to identify a valuable source that would lead them, into, lead them to Bin Laden's whereabouts. Most of these proved dubious or mistaken, and Bin Laden's trial went cold. Or Bin Laden's trail went cold, sorry. From his compound, Bin Laden allowed his various Al-Qaeda commanders to operate under limited autonomy, but he would have the final say on actions taken. 
So the CIA was also suspicious of Pakistan's ISI, as it was suspected elements within the organization were actively supporting bin Laden's security and concealment, which is pretty, like, I think it's pretty legitimate. It's pretty well known at this point, yeah. because I think the, the current uh, leader of Pakistan has been trying to do his best to clean up mm-hmm. that. Um, and just given the ISI's involvements with like al-Qaeda and the Taliban before. Yeah, and we should we should emphasize it, it's not the ISI as a whole. It's no, rogue elements, elements within, within ISI. Yeah. It's a little more questionable earlier when it comes to like the Northern Alliance kind of thing. Oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. That was like, that was the ISI full on. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> fuck India. In 2007, the CIA finally got the break they needed. Going off a tip from interrogated Guantanamo detainees, they managed to identify a man named Abu Ahmed al-Kuwaiti, via a wiretap in 2010. He was an alleged student of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. He was found to be living in Abbottabad and acted as an al-Qaeda courier. CIA agents were deployed to Abbottabad and began shadowing al-Kuwaiti. They found he made frequent visits to the Abbottabad compound, leading to suspicion bin Laden was inside. They further discovered al-Kuwaiti and his brother were permitted in and out of the compound, raising their suspicions. A combination of stealth drones and on-ground intelligence managed to paint a clear picture of the compound. They further observed an individual would occasionally wander through the compound's courtyard alone. The individual, codenamed quote-unquote Pacer, it was suspected to be Bin Laden, but this was never confirmed. Field operatives managed to plant spyware on the courier's phones and even made a plan to infiltrate the compound using nurses to gather DNA under the ruse of providing vaccinations. It remains unknown if this was ever carried out. Several plans were brought to the table. A joint American-Pakistani raid was quickly dismissed due to the previously mentioned suspicions of ISI elements cooperating with bin Laden. One popular proposal was to conduct a high-altitude bombing of the compound, but President Barack Obama disapproved of the plan concerned of mass civilian casualties. And eventually a plan of a ground raid using helicopters was approved. This plan needed to be held in utmost secret or secrecy without the knowledge of Pakistan or anyone else. And the raid had several risks, obviously. If Pakistan detected the incoming helicopters, informants could quickly alert bin Laden of the incoming attack. Furthermore, they would most certainly be intercepted and detained by the Pakistani army. There was also the major issue of what if bin Laden wasn't there? He had always managed to elude capture before, and many leads turned out to be false or dead ends. Ultimately, it was decided to take the risk. Admiral William H. McGravin, head of the Joint Special Operations Command, personally undertook the planning of the raid. He, along with a Navy SEAL captain known only as Brian, hand-selected 23 members of SEAL Team 6 Elite Red Squadron. Exact replicas of the compound were constructed in both Virginia and Arizona, with the team going through training session after training session with as many scenarios as possible thought of and tested. On April 28, 2011, a team landed in Jalalabad, Afghanistan, and went on standby for the raid. With them were several Black Hawk helicopters refurbished for stealth. Obama reportedly remained uncertain what his order would be the following day, still anxious over the possible outcomes. He could have been thinking of the failed rescue during the Iranian hostage crisis, for instance. A lot of possibilities here. The following morning, Obama officially gave the um, order the go-ahead. Helicopters set off from Tora Bora during the night of May 1st and 2nd, approaching the compound using only night vision to conceal their location. 23 Navy SEALs, a translator, and a German Shepherd were on board. Two support choppers waited with additional forces in case Pakistan retaliated. As the helicopters made their final approach, Chopper 1 suffered electrical issues and crashed into the compound. No SEALs were hurt or killed. The second chopper landed across the street and worked to secure the perimeter and act as crowd control. The 12-man team from Team 1 broke through the gate and entered the main section of the compound, while 10 from Team 2 entered the other side. 
Three seals cleared the guest houses while the rest split off into teams to clear the next courtyard. Al-Kuwaiti fired on the seals from the guest house and he was killed when the seals entered the home. In the main building, seals engaged Al-Kuwaiti's brother and sister-in-law, killing both of them. They had to break through several, several iron gates on each floor before heading to the second floor. On the stairs, seals killed one of bin Laden's sons. On the third floor, seals spotted a man poke his head around a doorway before ducking back inside. They followed the man in, finding three women between them and a lone man. One of the seals thought when one of the women was charged, so he shot her in the leg. He then forced the other two to the ground. The third seal then shot and killed the man, and the house went silent. Back in Washington, D.C., Obama, Vice President Biden, and Secretary of State Clinton, uh, members of the national security team were watching the raid happen live. The famous Situation Room photo shows the tension on their faces. The SEALs checked the body of the man, took a photograph, and radioed, Forgotten Country, Geronimo, Geronimo, Geronimo. This is the code word used to signify the target had been killed. Osama bin Laden was dead. The SEALs spent the remaining 20 minutes gathering any intelligence they could. Computer drives, flash drives, CDs, etc. The crash chopper was rigged with explosives and blown up before the SEALs were picked up and exfiltrated. The bin Laden's body was brought back to Jalalabad and officially confirmed as him. His body was later dumped from a U.S. Navy SEAL ship or u.s navy ship into the ocean at 11:35 p.m obama made a press conference announcing the death of bin laden good evening tonight i can report to the american people and to the world that the united states has conducted an operation that killed osama bin laden the leader of al-qaeda and a terrorist who's responsible for the murder of thousands of innocent men women and children a small team of Americans carried out the operation with extraordinary courage and capability. No Americans were harmed. They took care to avoid civilian casualties. After a firefight, they killed Osama bin Laden and took custody of his body. Do you remember when that happened? Because I actually, I, I, do, I remember. Like, actually, not as vividly as I should. <laughs> I remember. I, I'm pretty sure it was my dad. My dad's like, apparently Obama's about to make some big announcement. I'm like, okay. And he's like, no, no, apparently it's a big deal. And I'm like, oh, okay. So I decided to watch it. And then he comes out. He's like, we've conducted, he said that famous, yeah. those famous words. We've conducted a operation that has killed Osama bin Laden. And we were just like, oh, holy shit. Because it was, I was under the impression that he was dead already. Yeah. Like, I'm just like, there's no, like... I'd honestly given... I think by then, like, I honestly had given up on the idea of even finding Bin Laden or, like, he'd probably be dead or, like... Yeah. I think by then, for me, like, the war was so, like... It was... I'd honestly forgotten what it was even about. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, Omar Mullah, who... The founder... Yeah, I, Taliban. Was he the founder of the no, Taliban? No, he was just basically the, the most important. Okay. He, um... He died of tuberculosis in, like, 2007. Suckers. So I was, like... I was like, it doesn't seem that far-fetched to me that, uh, like, because I heard, like, that he, I mean, I heard crazy things, like, he was spotted in Utah and shit like that, mm -hmm. and I remember a lot of people making fun of, like, oh, he's uh, working a drive through at McDonald's in Utah. I remember shit, stupid shit like that, but I also heard that there's suspicions he died of, like, tuberculosis or something like that, and I'm yeah. just like, you know what, I can, I can see that. I can run with that and whatnot, but... Then, of course, like, nobody but knew that this then operation... A, then he caught a bullet from the SEALs. Yeah, nobody knew this operation was going to happen, so it was actually quite a shock. Mm -hmm. I remember my brother saying, could you imagine if they killed him on September 11th, <laughs> 2011? I'm just like, yeah. That would have been some crazy poetic justice. Yeah, it would have been. 
So we had a bit more to talk about, but we're going to end things there because honestly, you do know the rest of the story. It's happening right now. It's kind of hard to avoid yeah. watching what's happening without feeling anger. I definitely... It's weird because it's one of those things that's, yeah, I feel angry about what's happening, but am I surprised? No. I just, I think I feel saddest about it all, to be honest, because it's so, like, preventable. Like, uh, preventable is, like, not really the right word, but you know what I mean? Where it's, like, I think I just feel this, like, sadness of, like, knowing that how much of this was ultimately sort of wrought on, like, I don't, I don't even know how to articulate this. It just, it's just sad. It sucks. It's yeah. just, like, sad knowing that, like, this thing that, like, when I was, because when, you know, when Canada went to Afghanistan and whatever, like, I thought that I was young, so I didn't really understand. And so, in my mind, I'm like, all right, well, if we're supposed to be there, we're supposed to be there. Like, we can help people, whatever. And, like, I don't deny that um, Canadians did some good, I'm sure. Whatever. I don't yeah. really want to, I don't know. I don't want to talk about that even. doesn't matter. Um, but just, you know, like, the thing that keeps being, like, Jonah and I talked about this a lot leading up to the episode just in our own private discussions just about something that's really been bothering me is just this constant like using of the phrase like it's Afghanistan's the graveyard of empires I mean you know Biden even said it the other day and um it's true technically but I think it's just like the whole that 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 phrase has kept coming up and it's like really like it's really been bothering me because it's uh kind of just like I guess highlighting the thing about this whole discussion that frustrates me the most which is just that like you know Afghanistan is such a misunderstood place and like I am just starting to scratch the surface of what I know about it and I want to learn more um but like to say it's the graveyard of empires for instance like it's not wrong but it also completely just like erases this really rich history of before colonialism and then also kind of just like basically reduces the entire Afghan experience to what westerners think it just basically highlights like what the western world thinks of afghanistan we don't really think about afghanistan unless it relates to us we don't think about the fact that like they exist you know they people were they've had that the country's been there for so much longer and has such a their culture is so much richer and more diverse and more like established than ours ever will be in lots of ways like and so it's just like really frustrating that we've we're not talking about the colonialism and like the all of that all of that history that matters so much like it's we just casually call it the graveyard of empires without really talking about how the fact all those empires really fucked it up and it's kind of why we're here right now (laughs) like all those all those empires that quote-unquote died in afghanistan are like the biggest reason or a big reason as to why we're here now so it's like dealing with what we're dealing with and so it's just like i don't know it's been frustrating and sad. No, and I, I honestly have, and can't I even totally really. Agree. And it's not even a, and it's not about me. Like I feel these feelings, but I also want to use them in a way to like be better and recognize that like just understanding like the experiences of Afghan refugees who've come here and just Afghan people in general or just refugees in general and just all of that. And it's like it's been a lot. Um, and yeah, I don't really. I'm not going to take credit for like saying any of this because it's really just the case. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, I don't know. I just. Uh, but you made a really good point the other day is like, because you were explaining this to me the other day, if you don't mind me saying. Yeah. Um, but you said that, and I, I really agree with this, is that this is what you want Panastoria to be about. Is It is. We're not, I don't want to just recycle the same like lines and stories and 
because that's not the point for me. The point is to actually learn about what happened and tell you guys what happened and yeah. try and hope that we all learn something out of this because um, that's, I guess, the whole point of it for me. And so um, I don't want to use phrases like it's the graveyard of empires because, like, yeah, it's true, but um, actually the NPR document, the NPR podcast episode kind of hit it for me where it's like, that's a really derogatory term for the people of Afghanistan. Like, how would you feel if your country was being called a graveyard <laughs> and you still actively live there? Like, that's not good. I think a better term, this might be same, same, but it's more of a fortress. Yeah, I would say Afghanistan is more like a fortress. I mean, it's got a natural barrier, right? Yeah. Um, Many. Yeah. And that, I mean, uh, they're... And, and they're, and they, it's a heavily protected place. Like they're always going to fight for their place and they should, everyone should. I don't, I don't, uh, um, begrudge any freedom fighter in Afghanistan for fighting for what they've been. I may not necessarily agree with like everything they're saying or doing yeah. or whatever, but just the idea of wanting to fight for something like I don't begrudge yeah. that at all. And you're not, and we don't support the Taliban, obviously. No, no, no. So. And I'm not like, pro-violence even necessarily unless it has to happen obviously i I know you weren't saying that but i just don't to be clear being in a world where people take things out of context all the fucking time i do do just want to be here like i I, just really quickly i was having conversations with my dad throughout this Lindsay and i had a lot of anxieties surrounding this topic still do still do um kind of the same same things i kind of had different ones but that's another story and i was talking with my dad about like what's been going on in Afghanistan recently and such like that. And I was saying to him, I was like, what what hope in hell do the Taliban have in actually taking control of all of Afghanistan? Like not a realistic what? one because they didn't in the first place, but cuz there are, there are group there are villages and like tri- like tribal communities that were like were never touched by the Taliban even when they were in power before. What makes you think that they're going to bow down to them this time and the taliban couldn't even really reach them no right although so. i do think they have a better chance at succeeding this time simply because of the infrastructure that now exists from mm-hmm. this last you know two decades of well but, probably decade in but then they have that last barrier of the resilience of these people to remain absolutely autonomous and no free. absolutely i agree um i just feel that the taliban is going to end up the same way as the rest of these other everyone else who's trying yeah. to quote-unquote occupy yeah so and i and i don't disagree with that but it also doesn't mean that that's a victory it doesn't because it's like it because depends, they're then what's going to happen even next? if they're 80 percent in charge they're still 80 percent in charge yeah but it's like also <laughs> like what will happen next yeah that too i mean we're not going to obviously predict what happens next this is, this is just my opinion of like what's yeah. like what about things but yeah so yeah we hope that we did this topic justice we understand we we discussed this, but we understand that that nine eleven is still deeply considered an untouchable topic. Mm-hmm. I suppose is the right word, yeah. And uh, it's been twenty years. We most of our lives have been in the post nine eleven world. They've been dictated by the events of September eleven. Yeah, and I've been. I was saying to dad, my dad, it's like it's just shocking to me that there are people who are now adults who were born after September 11th. Yeah, it it's just blows like, my mind. Oh, it's shocking to me. It's so weird. Um, but yeah, so we just hope, we, we, we mean obviously no disrespect to anyone. It was horrific what happened. Mm. 
I, I kind of have, I, I was going to kind of say my th final thoughts like I did in the last episode and I decided not to just because I just don't think it's necessary. Yeah. Um, we will, all have our, we I will all say our... this though. It's really weird talking about something like 9-11 because for the most part, well, not even for the most part, but like it's really recent history and like we've covered some recent history, obviously like Yugoslavia, et cetera, but like. We've not done something this This is something recent, that, like, yeah. we actually, like, li like remember and, like, live through and, like, like remember very vividly. Still living through the consequences. Still living through the consequences. Like, immediate so still, consequences, Exactly. I mean. So, like, it still feels weird to even be talking about it. Like, and I don't think because it's an untouchable subject or it's too sad to talk about, I don't think it has anything to do with that. I think it's just because it's so hard to have perspective when you're still ultimately living the consequences of it. It's not over. Yeah, and I absolutely agree with so. that. I do think it was important to talk about it because oh, absolutely, of, no, yes, it's like twenty years. I'm like, oh my god, yeah, like I'm still like I every I like in the weeks leading, even the months leading up to this, I'm just like, it's gonna be twenty years since that happened. Holy shit, it's crazy. Yeah. So, with yeah. that, um, you. you you got anything else? Or? No, I'm yeah. done. <laughs> I, uh, I do have, you did give me a um, fun fact that I know about. Mm. Uh, I I wish I remember the timeline when this, it was like in the 18, 1800s, something like that. Uh, two different um, senators from Arkansas. Uh, I think they're from opposing parties as well. One wanted to be known as the senator from Arkansas. The other wanted to be known as the, the senator, senator from, from Arkansas. Arkansas. Yes! I'm not kidding. There was actually huge, massive debates over wh whether it was Arkansas or Arkansas. Oh. And because of this, like, stupid shit, the, the Arkansas, um, the, the, the state, like, the state houses were like, that's it. We're settling this right now. And it's actually written in their constitution. It's pronounced Arkansas. <laughs> Because of two feuding senators. That's amazing. And <laughs> it, on that note. <laughs> it, uh, it's one of the most beautiful. I love That's telling so, that fact because it just so makes funny. me laugh. Oh, so, yeah. Kansas. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 do you have a fact at all? Okay. No, so um, anyway, so we do hope that you are doing well. Uh, this past week was Suicide Prevention Day. Week, really. Yeah. It's been um, a rough 18 months for all of us. It so. really has. So if you, so like, I don't want to go too much into this, but just if you, if you are feeling down and whatnot, there are people who can help and I'm willing to post a uh, list of phone numbers that you can have someone to talk to. So just know that you're not alone. We all feel you. We all feel your anxieties. We all feel your depression. And yeah, so just know that you're loved and that you're appreciated. And we definitely appreciate all of our listeners. So. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Kevin would say rar if you were here, but he's not. Yeah, he ducked so. out of this recording session, so. He did. All right. Thank you so much, and we hope you enjoy the rest of your day after this topic. So we'll talk to you again Just then. really quickly, um, sorry, Lindsay. Oh. <laughs> uh, I keep doing this to her, but uh, we were going to do uh, an episode regarding the history of certain of, of execution methods, and we were going to, like, I was going to do two, Lindsay was going to do two. This was a very heavy and anxiety-inducing topic, to be honest. Um, so I'm kind of like, I don't really want to go back into a hugely dark topic again, even though I've been wanting to do something like this for Halloween for a while. 
So just expect another nonsense in October. We're going to talk about Halloween stuff. So we hope you enjoy. And then after that, I believe we're talking about Terry Fox. I think so. Yeah. So stay tuned for that. Anyway, thank you so much. This is Jonah. And Lindsay. Thank you so much. Have a good night.